Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Brown University pre-college programs, where high school students can prepare for college success, experience college life, and make new friends from around the world. More than 300 courses are available. Precollege.brown.edu. Ahead on Boston Public Radio on Friday, the Republican National Committee voted to censure Representatives Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger for their participation in the Congressional Committee investigating the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. The resolution described their work as, quote, Democratic-led persecution of ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse. Legitimate political discourse? Really? U.S. Attorney from Massachusetts and former Suffolk District Attorney Rachel Rollins joins us a month into her tenure to talk about what she's doing about human trafficking, why she opted to dismiss charges against MIT scientist Gang Chen, arrested a year ago on charges he lied about connections to China, and as one who's received death threats herself, get her reaction both to such threats against Boston's Mayor Michelle Wu and to the protests outside of the Wu household. All that and more ahead on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Good morning, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. Hi. So in case you missed it, according to the Republican Party, January 6th was just an expression of, quote, legitimate political discourse. At the end of the week, the RNC voted to declare January 6th legitimate political discourse. I'm going to say that a few more times. And then censured Representatives Liz Cheney and Adam Kinziger, both Republicans, for condemning the attacks. Let's try it a third time. Legitimate political discourse discourse. As many as nine people died, either during or in the aftermath of the storming of the Capitol, including police officers who died by suicide after the attack. There were at least 150 people injured, uh, cops, pardon me, cops uh, injured. And the entire event was predicated on the intent to stop a legitimate election from being certified. So what is going on with the Republican Party? Is this the, is this the definitive moment the GOP embraced I mean, it is fascism, or can we walk back from the brink? I almost can't say it. We have President Trump shredding documents compulsively. He rips them into four <laughs> equal pieces, half one way and then half the other. Can you just see him doing it? Oh, yes, I can. Boom, Republican boom. Party censuring any member who condemns political violence perpetrated by supporters of their leader. I don't know why well, this on, one Jim. really on. put me over the edge. Why? It's not, it's sometimes it's four pieces and sometimes it's little teeny pieces. Oh, you're right. Pieces. Actually, he you're keep, right. I take it back. He keeps going. You're right. and, they're, and they're down there. These are these are people that have you know pretty high-level jobs. What are they doing? they got to get they're on the hands and knees on the floor. with their scotch tape, pulling stuff out of the wastebasket and then trying to reconstruct it like a jigsaw puzzle. And it's only a federal crime. It's not that big a deal. <laughs> 877-301-8970. 877-301-8970. You can email at WGBH.org or tweet us at BOS Public Radio. You know, the ripping up thing, I mean, it is demented, but it sort of fits the profile of the man who's doing the ripping. I can't tell you, and I don't know, you know, you never know what outrage against democracy puts you over the edge more than the other, and we become numb to so many. Legitimate political discourse? Well, you know, we, we get emails all the time from people complaining, and they're saying, you you know, you're not fair to the Republicans, you're always trashing right. the GOP. I know yep. And um, but at the moment, it's hard. What are what is the GOP doing that we should be in favor of? I mean, it's not. Well, like let's the, invite those people to call the people in email saying we're being unfair. 
Today is your opportunity to say how we are obviously perverting this because it was legitimate political discourse, though nine people, I believe is the count, died as a result and scores and scores of cops and others were injured. I mean, really? What they do is they lie. It's become so common. They just lie about things and they hope people are going to believe them. The people that were like way back in the crowd are not being hauled in to uh, face prison time. Mm -hmm. It's the people that were doing bad things inside the Capitol building itself. But you know what the other thing is? It's, it's, we have a governor that was widely popular here, a Republican governor. We have a long history of uh, popular Republican mm-hmm. Republican state, maybe not as popular as Charlie Baker, but Bill Weld, Paul Salucci, mm-hmm. you know, Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney was mm-hmm. more conservative than a lot of the Republicans we, we elect here. But, but um, those are like the normal... Republicans, fiscal conservatives, um, a lot of them are socially liberal, but they're not these crazy people that are talking. About, and you know what's so funny? Mitt Romney. It's his niece, by the way, is the chair of yeah. the party. Yeah. I mean, the <laughs> I executive he, director yeah. or whatever he the hell trashed, it he, he trashed the whole thing. Um, he said, you know, shame falls in a party that would censure persons of conscience who seek truth in the face of vitriol. Mitt Romney uh, of Utah wrote on Twitter, and he said we should be honoring uh, Liz Cheney and Adam Kissing- uh, Kinzinger, and he never mentions, of course, that uh, Ronna McDaniel is his niece. She's the head of the Republican National Committee, so I guess he wanted to leave family politics out of it but you know you want where there are people that i think are fairly normal like mitt romney conservative but not a crazy person susan you mean the mitt romney you talking about mitt romney the guy who wouldn't vote to even have a debate on the voting rights act is that the same guy you're talking about exactly you think you think where are these people i mean that would that will stand up is it only liz cheney and adam kinziger is that it Legitimate political discourse is the term they used. 877-301-8970. But again, I'm with Marjorie. I encourage people who have criticized us for being so critical of Donald Trump and his sycophants uh, on this one. And obviously this is a Trump-inspired uh, statement on the part of the party. Please explain to us what we're missing. 877-301-8970. Robert, you're on Woburn. You're on first on Boston Public Radio. Welcome. Hi. Hi. My name is Robert. I know that. I believe I believe that the leaders of the Republican National Committee, yes, uh, who who, uh, who who basically uh, put out put out this uh, this statement. Yeah, uh, I be- I believe that they are in favor of autocracy. I believe they should be exported to Russia, where they can live in an autocracy. <laughs> excellent idea. I hope they'll be happy there. I think that is an excellent <laughs> idea, Robert. Thank you for your solution of the problem. Appreciate eight seven seven. Three zero one eighty nine seventy. By the way, one of the images I know I didn't want to talk about this because it's minor by comparison. The image of Donald Trump sitting on his Air Force One or his desk or in the whatever the presidential yep. suite yep. ripping up this stuff is really it's it's you know what it's like. Who was the was a Captain Quig? Who was uh, playing with the balls in his hand? Wasn't that Captain Quig who was I, doing I that thing? Remember. Whatever it was. I, I, but I do know this. I was around some little kids this week, and I was down visiting my little adorable little granddaughter. Yeah. And you know, you know, what kids love to do. They're about no. two years old. They love to rip up paper, mm-hmm. Jim. I mean, it's very exciting to them, and apparently, it's very exciting um, to the president of the United States, the former president of the United States. Mm-hmm. And you know what else? No. There's just sort, and he knew this was against this federal law about preserving these documents mm-hmm. for posterity, but it's kind of symbolic of his base, basically laws don't apply to me. I'm above the laws. I could shoot somebody in Fifth Avenue and get away with it, which he probably could. Michael from Watertown, what do you think? Hi, Michael. Yeah, well, I mean, he's just acting like any mob boss would. Nope. Uh, I just had I just had the feeling that uh, 
to his followers the image of highly trained experts uh, and people with a lot of education having to go on their hands and knees, you know, picking up scraps of paper like the nanny to you know, a two-year-old is like candy to them because, well, I mean, he hates competence because it makes, uh, makes him feel inferior. And uh, admittedly, a lot of people uh, in parts of society feel like they've been uh, done badly by people who, with, with credentials. But I, no, I, Yeah, no. you're probably right. Michael, you seem to understand this issue quite well. So a, a question for you. Why do you think some documents he, li- he ripped into four equal pieces <laughs> and others he ripped sort of confetti-like? Do you have any <laughs> analysis of that for us? Uh, I can't say definitively. It's possible that the ones that he did a better job of ripping up might be more incriminating. Excellent or point. Or might be that he just got bored with it. That's a very good point. You know, and, it, Michael, no, I, it's not like he, he's good. good at sticking to plans. No, that is a very fine point. Michael, thank you for the call. By the way, it also, in the account on the ripping up of the documents in violation of federal law, some went into a garbage can, but yeah. other times he just dropped them on the floor. Yeah. Like or on Air on Force desk. One. Yeah, just, yeah, or on just his desk, dropped right. them. Let somebody else, let the plebeians uh, pick them all up. You know what I love, too? We, we've forgotten this from the beginning of his administration. Remember at the beginning when we thought that maybe things could be not as bad as they turned out? Mm-hmm. That um, various aides were, were saying, don't, don't, don't put crazy conspiracies on his desk. You know, just don't do that because he'll read them and believe them. And they mentioned that again, that uh, Reince, Reince Priebus was, who was his, briefly his chief of staff, uh, to try to keep the crazy documents off the president's desk so he wouldn't fall for them hook, line, and sinker. Courtney from Holden. Wait, before they, Courtney, you go on. Can you answer a question for me? Actually, mm-hmm. maybe Courtney can. Courtney, you can answer the question. Can you describe the thought process of human beings who are drafting a statement on behalf of anything, in this case, the Republican National Committee, who decide, I have a great phrase, let's call it legitimate political discourse. Can you explain that to me or no? I can't because I was calling to ask you guys to iron out some confusion for me, Please. which is that political, legitimate political discourse is losing nine lives on mm-hmm. January 6th, mm-hmm. and yet Tony Morrison is not something it can handle. <laughs> like, I don't understand. I don't understand. <laughs> That's a good one. So if I'm, if I'm going to use my logic, and it might be bad because I'm angry, um, you, it's okay to lose nine people because they don't agree with you. But if you're even remotely uncomfortable by a message, that can be banned. Like that's, it's a great, that's a good so. one. Well, you know what's great about this, Courtney? Um, uh, a lot of people on the right have loved to uh, call the uh, Democrats and liberals snowflakes. You know, snowflakes. They're, they're snowflakes. Yes. Now the snowflakes turn out to be Ron DeSantis down in Florida and all his constituents that are so worried about their feelings being hurt. Should should slavery or white supremacism, uh, supremacy be mentioned in their classroom? They're the new fl- snowflakes, I guess. Although it would melt in Florida, wouldn't it, the snow? Courtney, excellent call. Thank you. You know, I'm also, I'm sorry I even focused only on the nine people who lost their lives. Legitimate political discourse, according to these Republican leaders, describes an effort by people to overthrow the government of the United States of America. He's admitted it now, right? Well, not overthrow. That, that he admitted Subvert last weekend the that it should the results should be overturned. And by the way, you know what's also pathetic? If I what? can just get this out of my system, what? the fact that Mike Pence was praised for saying that his job is not to violate the constitutional 
limitations on what the vice president can do. Here is Pence last week at the Federalist Society and the conservative uh, lawyers group uh, on Friday, I think in Florida. I'm not sure. Here he is. I heard this week that President Trump said I had the right to overturn the election. But President Trump is wrong. I had no right to overturn the election. The presidency belongs to the American people and the American people alone. And frankly, there is no idea more un-American than the notion that any one person could choose the American president. Under the Constitution, I had no right to change the outcome of our election. Wow, that is bold. That was really bold. The vice president doesn't have the power to change the outcome of the election. Did you know that before Mike Pence said that on Friday? You might have thought he could have said Joe Biden won the election, but he couldn't go that far, I guess. I mean, it's just it's, – it is there's – it's – Whatever. Let's yeah. go to uh, Susan and Hudson. Hi there. Uh, welcome, Susan. How are you? Uh, hi. Good morning. And to you. Uh, I believe I've, uh, <laughs> I, I've read in several articles that was excrement spread throughout the Capitol. Yeah. yeah. So in the future, when I go number two and someone says, well, where, what were you doing? I will absolutely say. <laughs> legitimate. <laughs> legitimate political discourse. That's a good one. It's uh, so much nicer, don't you think? I, I, I do like it, actually. I'm going to try it myself. Susan, that was excellent. Thank you very much for your uh, for your call. Appreciate it. You know, it is I- incredible. You can criticize Biden all you want and criticize the administration all you want. But the Democrats were trying to do something good for the United States, you know, with infrastructure, climate change, helping people with their enormous uh, child care costs, helping have universal preschool that is um, in kind of de rigueur and all these other sophisticated countries. What, what, exact, what are the Republicans for at this point? Legitimate political discourse. Is that what you mean? How many times can I say that in this one? Say, and by you know the what way, we love is, is, is how I forget the two people last week, but there were two more people Who? that voted against all the stuff, the infrastructure stuff that were down. In the oh, district. it was Rubio and Scott. Yeah. Oh, do we even say, oh, I am so. <laughs> explain that story, please. Well, they voted against having the, um, the infrastructure bill that, you know, I don't think anybody can deny our roads and bridges, our ports. You know, part of this whole thing with the cargo delays has to do with the fact that our ports were in such crummy shape. And and uh, they voted against all this that we desperately need. And then when they got some goodies down Billion Florida, dollars for the Everglades is what they were talking yeah, about. Yeah, they got the goodies and they talked about how great the goodies were, even though if they had their will, they wouldn't have gotten no, the No, they went further. Not how great the goodies were. How great the goodies were and how proud they were to bring the goodies That's right. to Florida. A billion right. dollars for the Everglades that they voted against. By the way, for once, my reference was actually right. Captain Quig and the Kane Mutiny was uh, kept juggling, not juggling, moving uh, those metal balls in his fingers. He was a little That is a very impressive literary uh, 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 quotation, Jim, or whatever you're saying. Whatever it is. I'm, I'm very impressed. I don't know where I heard it. I didn't but know it about is. Captain Queeg. Yeah, I think you did. I Michael uh, in New uh, Bedford, we're talking about paper ripping and legitimate political discourse. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Sure. Uh, I just want to say, you know, I think the legitimate political discourse, I mean, that's absurd. I, I think, you know, you guys know that. I teach high school civics. Oh, great. It is very difficult to try to teach students how government works, how government could work, while also, you know, staying in the middle of the road, not, not going to the left or to the right. But I think this is alarming, and I think people don't quite realize how much of a threat to our democracy this is. You know, Michael, I can't tell you how glad I am you called as a civics teacher in high school. When a, when a kid, a student in your class, 
ask you about, well, the Republican National Committee said it was legitimate political discourse. The former president of the United States said that when Lindsey Graham said it was, quote, inappropriate for the former president to be talking about pardoning the insurrectionist should he be reelected in 2024. What do you say to that student of yours, uh, a former president and the leaders of one of the two major political parties? What do you say to that? You know, it's ridiculously challenging to address that. We try to look at what all of those words actually mean in as an objective, you know, way as possible. And then, you know, we kind of have a discussion and and go from there. And I encourage them to to look up these elected officials and and look up what their voting records are. Whether or not that is acceptable. Boy, you have one of the most important jobs, and I mean this sincerely, there is, teaching civics to young men and women as they enter the world. Uh, That's Stay in touch with us, Michael. Thanks for the call. And thank goodness, Michael, you're in Massachusetts because we're reading about Tennessee where they're going to discipline teachers and withhold money from school districts that teach banned concepts that they don't like, the legislature, about about racism. I mean, teachers are in... in, Because it makes the white kids uncomfortable. That's right. But they're risking their jobs. They're risking penalties. I mean, they've become like frontline warriors if you're teaching history in high school. Let's go to Mark on the Road. Hi, Mark. Hello, Mark on the Road. Hey, guys. Uh, uh, second time, long time, back when you went from a whole to one-third on the radio. Oh, um, thank you. Nice to have you. What's <laughs> up, anyway, Mark? Go ahead. I, I just, uh, so, so the BBC had a uh, had an issue uh, not too long ago, three, four, five years ago, where they were trying to balance the BBC's policy on equal representation of opposing ideas with the fact that some of the opposing sides were, you know, didn't make any sense, weren't based on facts or credibility or whatever, um, in that they wanted to try and move away from that policy and actually, you know, be able to identify the fact that the, the opposing position is actually not a terribly legitimate position and doesn't have really any basis in fact or reality. So the idea is that the, the drive towards uh, non-biased reporting can oftentimes result in false equivalencies mm. where the media yeah, is covering great point. sides of a position, yep. but one of, the, one of the sides is actually not based in fact or reality. Yeah, I agree it, if you point that out. Yeah, you know something. I, I think that's a that's a it's, that's a great point because it is true. We did a lot of false equivalencies in the Trump uh, Hillary Clinton that. election. That you know, shame on us. A, a lot of us did it, myself and included. And, and you know, it's interesting. The Globe had a thing the other day in the paper that they're no longer going to take um, stories from climate change deniers because that used to be something we had to do. Mark, you get the people that were talking about climate change, and you had to go get the the perspective of the people that were climate change deniers. And now we finally get to the point where we're not going to take the remarks of climate change deniers because the science has proven them to be wrong. And I wish that were true about, I mean, this is part of the Joe Rogan thing, right? Why people got so, you know, uh, Young and, and Joni Mitchell and the other uh, artists got so upset about Joe Rogan with the misinformation on climate change. We're going to talk uh, with the reverends a little bit later about what Joe Rogan, his use of the N-word as well. But you're right, Mark. Mark, that was a great one. Thank you uh, so much for the call. Uh, 877-301- Eighty-nine seventy. Out there on the mass pike is Allison. Welcome, Allison. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. So I think um, 
I'd love to see in the future. I think part of our problem is the um, dysfunction, obviously, in writing legislature and all, writing legislation and all of the things they put into it. Why not with Florida let them opt out of legislation? If they don't agree with it, great. You don't have to have the money for the Everglades, and we'll just opt your state out of this legislation. So we would get rid of partisan politics with this. I'll I'll buy into your legislation if you buy into mine. And I think that's one of the problems. I'm not a Republican. I'm a Democrat. But um, I think that's a problem that when by people that I do know that are Republicans and even independents have is all the pork belly that's put onto this legislation. I think we need to have an opt-out option for these states because, let's be honest, the Democratic states are the taxpayers that are funding our federal government more than any red state. Happens to be true. Uh, happens to be true. Uh, Allison, thanks for the call. Well, a variation on Allison's theme, I think you said this, is that uh, West Virginia should some form of Build Back Better pass. West Virginia should just not get the money. If he doesn't want to help low-income people in his state, then he shouldn't have to help low-income people You know, I think that would be state. wonderful. That's one of the great frustrations with Joe Biden, that he's not figured out a way to uh, rail in Joe Manchin. I mean, Biden's the president Joe Manchin is a senator from uh, uh, one of the poorest states in America. So you argue that he's not doing a great job for his constituents down there. You know, I don't know if I mentioned this in this segment, so if you just bear with me for a second. Did I mention the RNC described January 6th as legitimate political (laughs) discourse? I can't get over it. I'm looking at these words on the page. Were you as incredulous or do you just say just another day no. in the life? Well, that's the other thing that's so weird is that the GOP has long presented themselves as the friends of law enforcement. We know that one police point. officer died uh, later from the injuries he sustained that day or certainly from the trauma he sustained that day. And four cops committed suicide. You know, that's five people. And they had that memorial and that moment of, of commendation for those police officers. On the House floor, right? And remember the GOP? Not there. They didn't show up. Yeah. So five dead police officers who were out doing their job that day, and, I mean, it was basically the hell of them. So what is your – we've had this discussion before, but I forget what your answer is. What do we just age out of this at some point, assuming the democracy survives long enough? (laughs) No, I don't mean that as a joke. Have you heard one person come up with a legitimate, hopeful fix? I mean, the only thing it seems to me is all the Republicans who are sane – We've had this discussion before, meet in a room and say, we're not going to stick our individual heads out because Donald Trump will cut them off. Forty of us are going to go out in a joint press conference and condemn the National Committee, condemn Trump's comments about pardons, etc. So there are too many of us to primary to attack. I mean, what else is there? I mean, I don't know. I'm not I'm not encouraged. I think we're in big trouble here. When you have Susan Collins, who supposedly is one of the moderates who did vote to impeach Donald Trump, which would mean he could no longer hold office in the United States of America, where Mm -hmm. he convicted, gets on television a week ago and can't even say she's not going to support him for reelection. So she voted to impeach him. Convict him and remove him, not just impeach him. Convict him and remove him. Yeah, but but you can't say it's a bad idea to have someone become the president again? No. That I just voted to impeach and, as you said, convict and remove? So what's the good news again? I missed that part. What's the good news about this discussion? Because you're always looking for like a silver lining. Well, we did this. have John Delvopi on last week, and yeah, he said that the, that the Generation Z, otherwise known as the Zoomers, that the young people are voting more than ever. And uh, even uh, young Republicans are very upset about a lot of what their party's yeah, doing. Yeah, but to be hopeful about that, you have to believe the country's going to exist when they get to 30, which <laughs> I think is a really debatable <laughs> presumption in the grand scheme Okay, of overall, Jim, 
I guess things are not looking too good, are they? They're not looking too good, but we don't want to be too discouraged. Um, we have a lot of good uh, people out there that are trying to make things exactly. better, I Thank hope. You. Anyway, coming up, we are going to talk to United States Attorney for the District of Massachusetts, Rachel Rollins. You know her. She was the former District Attorney of Suffolk County. She's been a month in her new job as the United States Attorney for the District of Massachusetts. We're going to ask her what she's been up to. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. Join us now just four weeks, I think, to the day of her being sworn in as U.S. Attorney for the District of Massachusetts. This is Rachel Rollins. U.S. Attorney, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. So four weeks in, are you you're glad you're there or you're second-guessing yourself? <laughs> no, I'm, I am very, very glad I'm here. It is... It, there are lots of similarities, but it is um, there are some very significant differences, and um, just humbled still to this day. Every time I, I walk into this building as a person who used to work here, to be leading this office right now. What differences are you talking about? So the volume is not as significant um, as the district attorneys see. All eleven of those district attorneys' offices, whether large or small, see a lot more cases mm-hmm. coming through the door than the U.S. Attorney's Office does. But when I tell you, Jim and Marjorie, virtually every case we handle here is significant, right? Um, Or really complicated. Uh, So, you know, uh, my first week we had Gang Chen, right? My, um, we also, if you read in the paper, we had some um, matters with Gary Sampson, right? Upcoming, we're waiting for the United States Supreme Court to issue a ruling regarding Sarnayev. Like these are, cases that have molded our commonwealth. They are in the fabric of who we are. And this office was at the front of it. Okay, since you yeah. mentioned Gang Chen, yes. can we talk about that just for a second? I assume sure. people know he's the MIT engineering professor uh, uh, who was charged with failure to disclose certain information about funding from the Chinese entities. Uh, and uh, a couple of weeks ago, your office, the pr- prosecution was started under your predecessor, Lelling, you dismissed them, uh, quote, in the interests of justice. He wrote an op-ed, Gang Chen did, in The Globe, saying it totally destroyed his life, etc. And that uh, the he believed that the, uh, the prosecution was, quote, politically and racially motivated. What's your reaction to that analysis by him? My re- well, I started on January 10th, and this case began a long time before I was the United States Attorney. What I'm, what I'm proud of, honestly, with this office is that we, as prosecutors, must constantly review whether we have enough evidence to prove our case. And I am always going to encourage any prosecutorial office that I am privileged to lead to do that rigorous review at every point during our investigation up to and including trial. And, you know, I, it's painful to hear uh, Mr. Chen describe that. Do you agree with that? Is he on to something? Was it politically and racially motivated? I think you would need to ask him that. I don't, I don't, I don't believe that our office was intending to do that. What I can tell you is the leader of this office now 
we are going to be looking at who we are prosecuting, why we are prosecuting them, and how this makes the Commonwealth of Massachusetts more safe or healthy with the prosecutions or the affirmative litigation that we bring from the civil division. Rachel Rollins, you also mentioned uh, Gary Sampson. I believe you're talking about the guy who went on the killing spree back around 2000, 2001 that was sentenced, uh, that was uh, just died in a prison, I think, in, out in Missouri, I believe. So what's the issue with Sampson? Death so, penalty? Well, what dead. the issue is, is it's called the abatement doctrine, Marjorie. And so when, hypothetically, let's not talk about Gary Sampson. If I am charged with the crime, even if I'm indicted and I die before my trial, I'm innocent because I have yet been proven guilty. What was really troubling about Gary Sampson and our state um, Supreme Judicial Court has has ruled on this very issue with Aaron Hernandez is Mm -hmm. after you are found guilty by a jury, even if you have problems as a defendant to say this wasn't fair, whatever, you do have an appellate process, but you have been found guilty. You are no longer innocent because a jury has out there found you guilty or in this circumstance of Gary Sampson, he pled, he admitted that he killed these individuals. And there are three victims in that case, some in New Hampshire, some in Massachusetts, Philip McCloskey, Jonathan Rizzo and Robert Whitney. And those families have had to deal with decades of harm, not only losing their loved one, but then every appeal that is filed, every time something's overturned. And now Gary Lee Sampson dies. And there is a doctrine out there that says, even though he's been found guilty, we're going to wipe out his conviction because he had an appeal left. So we strongly objected to that as the United States Attorney's Office. And we are awaiting a ruling right now um, on that very issue. But we, I had the privilege of speaking with and meeting some of those victims, those Samson victims that even decades later are still hurt and harmed and traumatized by that horrific act by that individual. You know, speaking of still hurt and harmed and traumatized, uh, I know you'd agree, particularly because of some family connections with the military, too, that what happened in Holyoke at Soldier's Home is about as bad as it gets. We all know more than 70 people who served their country uh, died there. Uh, in a very short period of time, uh, Massachusetts Attorney General Moore Healy brought criminal charges against the top two leaders. They were dismissed. Uh, I mentioned to you in a prior discussion we had that uh, there were reports that as early as uh, middle of 2020, the your office, obviously under a different leader, and the Justice Department itself, Civil Rights Division, were looking into possible charges against people at Holyoke. Uh, there were reports that as recently as last fall, there were visits to uh, the soldiers' home there. Can you tell us, now that you've had a chance to get up to speed for a month, what is the status? Is there still an ongoing investigation? Could there be prosecutions potentially going forward on the federal level? So we don't hear at the U.S. Attorney's Office comment on on potential ongoing investigations. But I will say, with respect to Attorney General Healy's criminal charges she brought, I was I was proud to see that, as I'm sure many people in our Commonwealth were. Um, although those were dismissed, I believe she's appealing. And, you know, Jim, just... It is it is 
unconscionable, I believe, what, what has happened as uh, everything we've read in the paper. This is sharing no private information. I know as U.S. attorney, I've made these statements well prior to being privileged enough to lead this office. But those, they were all men um, that I know of, but those men and women that live in those homes deserve the best of our treatment, the best of our care, because they gave themselves so that we have the privilege of free speech, right? The ability to live um, and, and have liberty here in the United States. And it is heart-wrenching to think of how their lives ended due to, you know, obvious negligence or incompetence there. We're talking to Rachel Rollins. She's the former Suffolk County District Attorney. She's now the United States Attorney for the District of Massachusetts. You know, I know you've said that you, now that you're in this role and not the previous one, you get your, uh, your marching orders from the Department of Justice. But you are in these weird places in some way where, you know, we have marijuana, which is legalized in Massachusetts. In fact, we had Danielle Allen, one of the candidates on the Democratic side that's thrown her hat into the ring for the gubernatorial race, saying we should be legalizing all drugs, decriminalizing, excuse me, decriminalizing all drugs in Massachusetts. So I how do you balance the the illegality of marijuana at the federal level with the legality of marijuana um, in Massachusetts? It's it's a fascinating issue. We've talked about these three areas, I think, where there's tension, particularly in Massachusetts, between state and federal law, right, or um, or preference, right. So, for example, with respect to marijuana, through um, ballot initiative, the people of our Commonwealth have determined that recreational as well as medicinal, they are for, and there it is, it is decriminalized up to a certain amount. However, the federal government still criminalizes marijuana. It is still uh, a controlled substance that um, we have the ability to prosecute individuals um, if they are uh, possessing, distributing, trafficking, et cetera. Another intersection is harm reduction sites, right? Where we see in Philadelphia, where there has been a tension between that city or the state of Pennsylvania and the federal government. And we're watching that litigation closely. Um, New York, I think, is talking about harm reduction sites as well. And the last area is immigration, where when you have places like Boston or Somerville that are um, sanctuary cities, and then you have a federal government that has immigration laws that we have to, you know, um, we have to enforce. Those are the tensions that we see. What I think people look at when they see me is you're the DA that, that filed a preliminary injunction with Marion Ryan against ICE, and now you're the U.S. attorney. Yes, I am. And what I will be is a person that um, is going to speak freely regarding what I believe our position should be, but I'm also going to make sure my voice is heard, but I will fall in line with respect to what the Biden administration and what the Garland um, Department of Justice dictates regarding how we are gonna implement immigration laws, what we're gonna do with harm reduction sites, and how we are going to prosecute, if at all, marijuana. Yeah, a couple of follow-ups to that. We're talking to Rachel Rollins, U.S. Attorney for the District of uh, Massachusetts. Uh, obviously, everybody knows you in part because of your 15 rebuttable presumption that I won't prosecute minor crimes. It seems to me there's an obligation on the part of the federal government. I know you're not running the federal government. When there is a conflict on this marijuana thing, for example, to let the people in your district know what the hell the rules of the game are. As you say, they voted to legalize these substances. You could prosecute under federal 
uh, uh, laws, uh, behavior that is otherwise legal here, don't you have an obligation to let these people, us, know uh, if you would prosecute uh, for any behavior that would be legal under state law but potentially illegal under federal law? Isn't that good criminal justice policy? Absolutely, Jim. I agree. And my hope is there's something called, I think I've described to you guys before, there are 93 U.S. attorneys in the United States of America. There's something called the Attorney General's Advisory Committee, where about 15 of those U.S. attorneys get selected to meet with the Attorney General every four to six weeks to discuss policy issues. If I'm appointed to that Attorney General Advisory Committee, or we are fortunate we have people like Christina Sterling and Mary Moraine in our office that are such leaders in what they do, they sit on those committees or they speak to people, I would like us to have a subcommittee, Jim, of all the states in the United States that have either legalized through ballot initiative or legislatively marijuana, medicinal, recreational, et cetera, so that we can get some guidance. Because what we get, Jim, is guideposts, right? And because what what is right here might not be right in Colorado, what is right, you know, here might not be right in another um, Commonwealth or state. So you're right. I'd like very much for us to give people guidance so they know where they can operate without running afoul of the U.S. Attorney's Office. I think that is a great suggestion, and it's something that I am um, have been thinking about quite a bit. I'm doing that for Marjorie's benefit, by the way. I just want to be clear. Uh, U.S. Marjorie is woke up this morning. Right. Yeah, I don't want to hear that, Jim. Cheech I'm not Chong. He's always I withdraw me. that comment. Actually, that I, don't, I don't go after him for what he may do. Okay, I know, fine. Marjorie. Let's move I know. On. I'm ear, earmuffs. I don't want to hear this. Let's That's move right. on to another question. Well, but it does sound a little bit to me. And correct me if I'm wrong. And by the way, we're talking to Rachel Rollins, U.S. Attorney of the District of Massachusetts. That a little bit what you're talking about before. Or was maybe sort of a bully pulpit sort of thing that, that, that you could talk about, this is the law, but this is my sense as a former prosecutor and now U.S. attorney about that law, not only with the Merrick Garland group, but in general with the public. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. So again, I think part of why I was interested in this job, Marjorie, is I believe we have a proof of concept of the way we led in Suffolk. People might not agree with my presumptive list of 15 or not, but they didn't feel surprised, right? When I was a candidate, I put up that list six weeks before I ran. Once I won my election and started three months later, I issued the Rollins memo. It was prominently displayed on our website. Criminal defense attorneys, community members, as well as my staff, all knew what they were getting into. And when they didn't feel like they were getting what was promised, they were able to say, hey, wait a minute, you, this isn't consistent. I think with the federal government, I want us to be going out a little bit more to explain all of the really powerful things we can do, not only in prosecuting people on the criminal side, but the civil side of our office, like the attorney general's office. We can do civil rights investigations. We've seen, um, you know, and we are awaiting some information, but we've seen some really interesting work with the civil rights division in the Springfield Narcotics Unit Police Department, in the Mass Department of Corrections. Those are things that I think we can lead on and explain to people. It's not just about police officers. It's about housing. It's about voting rights. It's about education. Those are all things that this office and our Department of Justice was founded on. 
Uh, Rachel Rollins, uh, um, we're talking to Rachel Rollins, obviously, U.S. Attorney for um, uh, District of Massachusetts. You uh, and Merrick Garland jointly announced the other day that uh, sex trafficking, uh, combating sex trafficking, was going to be a top priority for both the federal Department of Justice and for your office. Can you give us a brief sense of what that means? What it means is, you know, I think the depart- the District of Massachusetts has been a nationwide leader in healthcare fraud, national security, um, we economic crimes, you know, and we are going to continue to do that. We are always going to be leaders in those venues and industries. But I believe what this attorney general is focusing on is us being a little bit more involved than we have been in the past with respect to violent serious crimes. Those other things I described are obviously serious crimes. And with respect to national security, Sarnaev, for example, incredibly violent, right? Blew up our city, right? Hundreds of victims, some, many of whom that lived, some of whom sadly that did not. Sean Collier, Martin Richard, Crystal Campbell, and Lindsay Louis, right? Lou. So I feel like we have to make sure that we are explaining to people what district attorneys can do with violent crimes, what attorney generals of our state can do with violent crimes, and how the U.S. attorney can also come in and assist with some of that. Sex trafficking is happening all up and down Mass Ave and Melnia Cass in these areas that we see a lot of other problems, right? Other uh, drug trafficking, we see um, significant petty crimes happening in those areas. We believe that Uh, We need the full force of the federal government. Oftentimes we have far more funding. We have more, um, more, more uh, power. I didn't want to say manpower, people power, where we can put more agents on these cases and focus on the most violent, serious individuals causing the most harm. I have to, uh, just to understand your responsibility, this gets back to what Marjorie said before about uh, you've used the term in some interviews, marching orders from your bosses, obviously the Department of Justice. The Sarnayev case now before the Supreme Court, if ultimately the Supreme Court does something that puts it back in front of you, even if you personally have a problem with the death penalty, if the Department of Justice said they wanted you to proceed with the death penalty, you would. Is that correct? Yeah, what I think we are going to try to do when we get that ruling from the United States Supreme Court is the first thing we'll do is speak to our victims. Um, We will be obviously in in touch immediately after our victims with the Department of Justice, with Maine Justice and all the individuals we need to meet with there. And then ultimately, Jim, I'm going to meet with the team. I'm going to meet with the people that tried this case um, and we're going to make a decision if asked by made by the Department of Justice what our position is after speaking with our victims. We'll but make an informed decision moving forward. But if Merrick Garland or his deputy says we're going for the death penalty, you're, that's what you have to do, correct? That's correct. So, But I want to understand just in terms of discretion, there's another case where there's an odd sort of juxtaposition. Uh, people probably know this Newton judge, Shelley Joseph, that was uh, indicted for helping an undocumented person allegedly evade uh, federal authorities in the courthouse at roughly the same time that you and Mary and Ryan are suing those federal authorities to stay out of the courthouses and not do things. In that kind of case, you would have the jur- the, the discretion to say, I have decided, uh, like you did with Gang Chen, not to proceed 
with this prosecution against Judge Joseph should you choose to make that decision. That's not a DOJ thing. That's in your hands. Is that not correct? Likely, yes. But what I will say is you you do fully understand one of them is a death penalty, you know, um, uh, domestic terrorism case with respect to Sarnia, right, where, you know, we, I think, currently may have the only, after the moratorium on executions, we are the only, uh, that I recall, pending sort of national security, uh, domestic terrorism, death penalty case mm-hmm. currently in the country. There, there may be others, but we are certainly one that is in the top one, two, or three. Um, so you understand the autonomy I have with respect to a case that's within our district yeah. that might not yeah. have required approval from Maine justice, which is what we call it, Maine no E, as opposed to a death penalty case where our, our city was bombed. And of course, everyone in the globe knew what happened. So that is, you know, that that is those are different levels of approval. But most importantly, Jim, when we talk about Sarnaev, before you hear my voice about any decision that the United States Supreme Court makes, we will be speaking to our victims, Understood. of which there are hundreds, to make sure that they understand mm-hmm. the process and what happens. And then we'll make sure the rest of our community knows what it is that happens. You know, one last thing for me, uh, and we're speaking with Rachel Rollins, U.S. Attorney for the District of Massachusetts. We've had a lot of stories in the last few days in the Boston Globe and elsewhere about GBH uh, here as well, about um People getting outside of Michelle Wu's house in Boston, anti-vaxxers protesting, screaming. She's talked about getting death threats, being kind of an object of, of, of threats from all across the country, cyber, that kind of thing. You've obviously endured um, a lot of this as, as well. So I wondered, number one, do you feel safe and protected? And number two, what do you make of this? I mean, are these, are these about Rachel Rollins' policies, Michelle Wu's policies, or because you're women or women of color or the violent tenor of the times. What do you make about these really over-the-top attacks? When I think of Michelle, I just think of her sons. I think of her little boys. Um, I think of her mom, who she has shared, and this is her story, not mine to tell, but she's told it many times. Her mom suffers from mental health issues. Um, when, When you take the extraordinary step of saying, I'm gonna run for office, I'm going to put myself out there. You deserve the ire. You deserve the yelling. You deserve, you know, maybe not all of it, but some of it, certainly the criticism um, with how you lead if you are successful. And believe me, what I like to say is all of these people out there that are yelling, all these trolls that have a little avatar on their Twitter page that, you know, feel so comfortable in their mom's basement writing things, right? They would never say that to you in your face. They would never say that, I guarantee you, to you in, their, in your face if they saw you at work walking down um, the hallway. And I think that we have just reached a level where if you can't find respite in your home, where else can we go? Michelle goes to work every single day. She documents it like every tea ride she takes. We know exactly where she is and what she's doing. Go to City Hall. Have political discourse there, but let her go back to her home and love her family, her two young children, and make sure her mom feels safe where she is. Like her neighbors didn't ask for any of this and they are wonderful. They are wonderful people. But I think the level of restraint 
that she has shown, um, you know, she deserves like a profile and courage award because um, you know what I will say? Nobody shows up to my house yeah. because I, I made it very clear. I, this is a private way. Don't come here. Well, right? we know what like, happened when they did. Yeah, too. Right. I, I know so you got to go. I'm telling you, I'm I do think it's important though, to hear me say there are, there are little children that are now afraid. There's a, an elderly mom that is now afraid. What I say back is my nieces are in DCF custody. When kids are in DCF custody, you know what? It's usually not because they're well-adjusted and they don't have any problems. There's anxiety and trauma that people have endured. We don't deserve this. Nobody signed up for that. So I, I really, my heart deeply goes out to her. I don't even care what the issue is. Fight about it at work during working hours and let her go home and live her life peacefully because she chose to lead and she has a mandate with respect to what she is winning. And even if she didn't, even if she won by a hanging Chad, she is still the mayor of Boston and she has the right and the privilege to make these decisions, whether you agree with them or not. She actually didn't win by hanging Chad. She won by the same sort of margin you did, actually. Yeah, I know. I, I okay. She has a mandate. Yeah. I know you got to go. Just one quick minute for two very quick things. Philip Martin at GBH here did a terrific report on neo-Nazis demonstrating outside of Brigham and women uh, against a couple of doctors who they considered to be pro-white because they were actually doing work on health equity across uh, all kinds of racial lines. Is there a role for the U.S. attorney in uh, that situation? Yeah, I, I, you know, I believe that we should be working very closely with our local law enforcement partners. If, if Boston Police Department has a really top-notch um, unit that handles these type of investigations, but you know, I am always fascinated when we think about gang databases. Why aren't neo-Nazis in these gang databases, right? Um, when we look at who our gang database is filled with. It's 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20-year-old black kids from Roxbury, Dorchester, and Mattapan. And why aren't we looking at neo-Nazis to enter them into this database as well? It, it, is, it is just outrageous that there is this level of discourse that people feel comfortable um, engaging in right now. It's, it's, it's really, really troubling. And last thing for me, I got to speak on television the other night to your successor, interim successor, Kevin Hayden. And I have to say, and he said he's spoken to you a few times since he took over. The takeaway, the sense I got, even though he never said it in so many words after conversations with you, is he does intend to follow your lead at least through the completion of your term on in terms of the criminal justice philosophy that got you elected, that guided your tenure. Is that your takeaway from your conversations with him, U.S. Attorney? Um, I, I haven't really asked him that. Uh, my conversations with him prior to him being appointed were more about what do you what do you what do you look at Suffolk County and see, right? What what are your visions for this office? I felt deeply. Um, like aligned, you know, I felt, I felt almost maternal in my job as the district attorney there because I fought so hard to get that position. But Jim, at the end of the day, the data speak for itself, right? I was just on a call with um, the D deputy attorney general of the United States of America had all of the U.S. attorneys on a call. She listed two or three cities that are leading 
in the country with respect to violent crime being down. And I am proud to say Boston is one of them. And that has everything to do with Commissioner Long, right? And the Boston Police Department and all of our law enforcement partners. But it also has to do quite a bit, I believe, with the other law enforcement partners, the Attorney General, the US Attorney and the District Attorney. And we thought creatively in Suffolk County about this. And without those policies, Jim, we don't have the Integrity Review Bureau over 400 years of wrongful convictions undone and counting. We don't have pushed the project for unsolved Suffolk homicides. Three indictments against murderers, 20, 30 and 40 year old murders that we have now solved and we are moving forward to hold those people accountable. We have you know, lots of other crime strategies bureau. None of that happens without innovation and changing the way that we've always done things. So. You know, I don't know. I, I encourage him to do so. And whoever wins the election has the right to make that change. But the people of Suffolk County made it clear what they wanted for four years. And it seems to be working as far as from the seat I'm sitting in now. We really appreciate you. your generous contribution of time. Thanks so yeah, much. Thank today. you very much. All right, guys. Be well. Be well. You, you as well. We've been speaking with Rachel Rollins. She's the U.S. attorney for the District of Massachusetts. She, of course, was the former Suffolk County District Attorney. Up next... We're going to pull back the curtain on the nursing crisis in Massachusetts with two women who said they are facing extreme staffing shortages and burnout. You're listening to 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio. We'll check in with two nurses to talk about how their colleagues are faring two years into the pandemic. Katie Murphy, she's president of the Mass Nurses Association, as well as Worcester School Nurse Tammy Hale will join us. A little bit later in the show, we'll talk to the Globe's food and parenting writer Kara Baskin about her column, How to Talk to Kids About Sex, and we'll ask you how you did it. A Ukraine expert gives us the latest on tensions in the region and speaks to what Ukraine's sovereignty means in the 21st century. Plus, Russia's horrific treatment of Ukraine even before a famine there in the 1930s killed millions. Then the Reverend Zion Monroe and Emma Price on European Cardinals calling for changes to rules around queerness and pre-celibacy. Plus, Whoopi Goldberg gets in trouble and a slap on the wrist for podcaster Joe Rogan. All that ahead, Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Friday, I'm Marjorie Egan. You're listening to hour number two of Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Hello again, Jim. Another school superintendent bites the dust. Boy, I know. I'll tell you. I know. It's such turnover. It's really unfortunate. It is really unfortunate. So at the worst of the Omicron surge just a few weeks ago, the Massachusetts Nurses Association called on Governor Baker to declare a state of emergency through the end of March to address the crisis in hospitals. The union warned the system could buckle under the weight of the surge and the two plus years of pandemic conditions, causing staffing shortages and immense burnout beyond the pandemic. Joining us now are two nurses. Katie Murphy is president of the Massachusetts Nurses Association and a nurse at Brigham Women's. Tammy Hale is a school nurse at Gates Lane Elementary School. That's in Worcester. Katie and Tammy, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. 
Marjorie. Hi, Jim. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Our pleasure. Great, great to have you, you, you both here. And uh, kudos to all your fellow nurses, because this has really been hell on wheels, a lot of it, this pandemic, as we've been reading. Uh, so give us, starting with you, Katie, why don't we give us an overview of what you hear from your members about what's going on in their hospitals? Thanks so much. Uh, and it has been going on for two years, as you pointed out. Um, I hope that um, these um, decreasing numbers are a positive sign. But uh, across the Commonwealth and really across the nation, we're hearing the same thing, that patients are sicker than ever. I mean, we still have a lot of COVID positive patients in the hospital. We have patients in the hospitals who have delayed care or for one reason or another, been afraid to seek care. So hospitals are full. You know, some hospitals have patients in the hallways. The staffing issue, you know, uh, people are overwhelmed, burnt out um, after after two years of doing this pandemic work. Um, and that and in many cases, this existed long before the pandemic started. So it was kind of built on a on a shaky foundation to start with. And this is across the Commonwealth that people are feeling that they're at their breaking point and they're worrying about whether they can give the care that is required. You know, before we get to Tammy in a second, talk about school nurses, Katie, staying with you, this request of the governor to declare a state of emergency, how would it have addressed the concerns you just laid out? What would you have wanted him to do? You know, we felt that it would give him the tools that we're finding that our institutions are not utilizing like in what? order to to address. You know, some of things are very inconsistent around hospitals. PPE, return to work, visitor restrictions, um, and, you know, people coming in and out, um, both um, from out of state or um, altering their, you know, changing their license restrictions in the state. We feel that it needs to be consistent around the state and that this would give the governor these tools. Do you hear from him? Do you ever hear back from him? We haven't. You have not. Uh, Timmy Hale's a school nurse at Gates Lane Elementary School in Worcester. So you're right in the thick of everything with all these little kids there wondering who's got COVID and who doesn't. So give us what you're hearing about your fellow school nurses, Tammy. We're having a little technical uh, issue with Tammy. Well, John Parker fixes it. Let's continue with Katie and we'll get uh, back to Tammy as soon as we iron those things out. Uh, you know, we hear different, uh, Katie, numbers with all of every number I've heard about nurses either leaving the profession, contemplating leaving the profession. What are they? What are the most reliable ones you're hearing and how bad is it? So we do an annual survey of nurses and it's it's um, not just Mass- Massachusetts Nurses Associations, but um, nurses all over the Commonwealth. Uh-huh. And I think it's something like over 30 percent are seriously considering leaving the profession or leaving the bedside, which would be, you know, a disaster at this point. Well, what is that? Let's assume that even half that number became real. Let's hope it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Right. If 15% right. of nurses said, I can't, t- I, by the way, I couldn't take it for a day, much less the notion to do it with two years. And every time you see an end in sight, then you turn a corner and there's a new variant and all this sort of thing. If, if, if even half of that number were to do what they said they're thinking of doing, what would the real world impact be on our 
health in this Commonwealth? It would it would really crumble because, as you know, so many hospitals were staffing with just in time or they were staffing their hospitals with mandatory overtime, meaning once you put in your 12 hour shift or your eight hour shift, um, often without a lunch break, you were told, nope, you're not you're not going home. We need you to stay another four hours or another eight hours. So that that existed before the pandemic that exists now. So a 15 percent or even 10 percent of our nurses left. Think about it. You would not have enough nurses. You know, hospitals in January closed beds. They had to actually close beds because they did not have the number of nurses to care for the patients. And a, and a lot of that was because healthcare providers were testing positive for COVID-19 as well. So it was a, a, it was a mix of, um, of issues, but beds, beds were closed. That means people who both had COVID-19 or people who were having heart attacks or were mm-hmm. falling and breaking a hip couldn't get those hospital beds. Let's go back to Timmy Hart. I think her connection is fixed now. Timmy she's a school Timmy Hale, excuse me. She's the school nurse from uh, Gates Elementary in Worcester. Hello, Tammy, can you hear us now okay? Uh, I sure can. Thank Good. you so very much for giving me this opportunity to speak. Thanks for being here. Um, yeah, so tell us what's going so we, on. So tell us what you hear about these the school nurses. What's going on in the nurse's office? Yeah, it's um, there's a lot going on in the nurse's office now. <laughs> Um, I've been a school nurse for 16 years, and I never could have imagined that this is what school nursing would become. Um, you know, uh, without having a, a real fully staffed uh, local health department in the second largest city in New England, all of this work really has fallen on the school nurses. Um, this is definitely, you know, a community issue, and, and us as school nurses are, are now the public health department. Um, which has definitely made things challenging. I already have a job. I'm a full-time school nurse, and now I am also a, a, a public health nurse. Well, what I've been reading, it was uh, particularly in, in some, from some school nurses in Boston, is that they're, they're, they're trying to test kids that may have COVID. There isn't really a definite protocol. If you can't reach mom or dad or the re- designated relative, do you sit, does this kid sit with you all day, or can the kid take the bus home at the end of the day? And then meanwhile, you got the vision tests and hearing tests backing up. Yeah, exactly. That's and that's the full time job that I already have is is doing my school nurse work. And so with this, they call it the test and stay program where we test kids who are close contacts within the building of a positive case. Um, and so you're trying to manage doing that at the same time, trying to manage your, your nurse's office. And it has become incredibly challenging um, for us. I think my most my busiest day, we did over 100 tests in one day. Um, wow. I, I'm fortunate at my school that I have a medical assistant who works in my medical waiting room with me to do testing, um, but it, it's it's definitely challenging. It's not something we ever thought we would have to do. Um, and with the guidelines, you know, I, I know Katie had mentioned this earlier. They, you know, depending on where you work, the guidelines are different. So for us, we have to follow DESE. But for some of these parents, when I'm trying to explain to them why their child has to leave or how long they have to stay out or what the testing is, it may be different for their job because they don't fall under DESE. What DESE is the elementary and secondary education? Oh, yeah. yeah, it's okay. I'm sorry. No, it's yeah. okay. So it becomes a, it becomes a real challenge to try to you know get compliance when things are so vague and and the guidelines are very different for everybody it's, it's challenging tell me you know, I, what i don't understand and maybe you touched on this already is so if you're doing 
and I understand the most immediate concern is the testing and COVID directly, the physical part of COVID. What we've all learned through this is um, the toughest part of COVID for kids has been the mental health component. So in addition to what you said Um, before about the vision tests and the whatever, the more mundane things, and I don't mean to disparage their importance at all, but how the hell, if you're dealing with all these tests and things, which you have to do, how do you deal with a kid who comes in who's depressed on a particular day or week because they're worried? You know, well, you know, I mean, I don't have to finish the sentence. How do you do it? Yeah, yeah, that is that is a, a real big concern. We've brought kids down to the medical room to test them, at, and you can just see it on their face. They're scared. They're anxious. Um, you know, they're depressed. This is real. And they have seen some real devastation in their family. They have lost um, grandparents. They have lost aunts, uncles, sometimes parents. It's really hard on the kids. I mean, I I think the testing part, doing the actual test, they're they're actually better than some of the adults. Um, But the other piece of it, the mental health part of it, they really they really struggle with it. Um, I'm fortunate we have a, a school adjustment counselor here who can step in and help the kids. Um, but you have to take that. You have to take the time with them. You have to explain to them what you're doing. You have to reassure them that they're going to be okay, um, and that this is, you know, we're doing this for their safety, and that, you know, this is the best thing and the and the way for us to keep them safe at school. Because that's where we want them. We want them here. We want them to have the consistency of being in school with the resources we have, um, and to get their education. That's the voice of Tammy Hale. She's a school nurse at Gates Lane Elementary in Worcester. Katie Murphy is the president of the Mass Nurses Association. She's a nurse at Brigham Women's. Katie, starting with you, but both of you. uh, I told Marjorie, I was listening to NPR this morning. There was a story, and I can't remember if it was Oregon or Washington State, where they were talking to a bunch of nurses. And they were dealing with the dilemma that we talk about a lot on the show, particularly with our medical ethicist, Art Kaplan, on Wednesdays, about having to treat somebody who comes in who is likely only there because they made the choice not to do what likely would have protected them, namely get vaccinated. And so not only are they at great risk and want your help now, and you can't, there's only so much help you can give. They're putting other people at risk. How taxing is that for a man or woman who does what you do when you know this isn't like other health things where Everybody did whatever they could, but they consciously chose not to do the thing that could have protected them, their family, and you. How hard is that? Boy, what a what a poignant question. And I have to say this affects the entire healthcare team. Physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, social workers, everybody. In the first place, we work to save everybody's lives, without a doubt. It doesn't matter what their, of course, what their vaccination status is. Absolutely not. Every life is important, and we all give 100% to save that person. But this does contribute to the moral distress that we're feeling at the bedside. And it, it is the entire healthcare team saying, "What? what if we lose this person? And what about the people who might need that bed, who can't get that bed yeah. because this person? So it, it contributes. And again, it, it, it in no way imp- impacts the work that we do, but it contributes to the moral distress of the entire team. 
Katie, I read in a WHGH Channel 7 piece, too, about the Brigham, talking about that you're, you're kind of the enforcers, too. We've heard about people that are at the front of restaurants having to ask people for their vaccination cards or their masks, that the people are supposed to wear masks, and there's a limit to how many visitors can come in the room, of course, because of COVID. And the nurses are enforcing that, too? That's... Yeah, and no. that and that really again, that's the inconsistency across the Commonwealth. And sometimes, you know, it really has to be. We have to make exceptions for partners of people in labor. We make exceptions for people who are disabled, and this might be a support person. We make exceptions at end of life. So there are a lot of exceptions. There are a lot of gray areas, and the whole time we're really trying to protect the healthcare team and our patients. Many of us have immunocompromised patients and we're, we're acutely aware of, of people that they're being exposed to. So yeah, we're, we are constantly, constantly, yes, being the enforcers. So Tammy, moving to you about the unvaccinated just for a second, what do you say to a, and now that your kid is in is age eligible to get the vaccine, we hear the numbers aren't very good for five to 11s. What do you say to the kid? I don't even know if you're permitted to recommend to a kid to get vaccinated. What do you say to the kid if you're allowed to? What do you say to the parent who comes in who's an anti-vaxxer or just doesn't think it's necessary for their kid or themselves? How do you handle it? Yeah, that's that's a difficult one. Um, with the kids, I mean, you if they ask me questions directly, I can kind of, you know, give them the, the information. But you, you have to be very careful because it's it's not their really their choice. Right. It's their mm-hmm. parents um, decision as to whether or not they vaccinate them. Um, but if a parent was to come in, you know, I, I try to give them the real information, you know, try to say is, uh, um, you know, don't don't put feelings into it. Try not to. Um, make them feel like, although, you know, sometimes you you, you want to say that, um, but you try to tell them this is what we need to do as a community to help protect all of us. Um, and that, you know, this is the best thing for us. You know, there are, is evidence out there that shows that this is. Um, I, I explain to them I do the same thing for my own children, um, you know, and that it does work and it will help the kids in the long run and if they do this. Do you ever so convince anybody who do you ever convince anybody um, <laughs> who came in, came in not wanting uh, to do it and leaves saying I'm going to go do it? You you made the case. I I you know what if they are right off the bat I'm not doing this it's not going to happen you know I don't mm-hmm. think I've ever changed anyone's mind that way but I definitely have with parents who are seeking the information who want the knowledge they want to be able to make a good, good. decision for their child and yes I definitely think that I have been able to help parents make that choice. Um, you know, so. you know, uh, yep. Katie, there is a story, a video story, a video op-ed in the New York Times that everybody should check out. It's called We Know the Real Cause of the Crisis in Our Hospitals is Greed. And it's a bunch of nurses talking about just that. One of the nurses is yours, who I've gotten to know because she was a leader in the, the courageous St. Vincent's effort that you and your members, Marlena Pellegrino, for those who haven't seen this piece yet, what's the point those nurses are making in that video op-ed? It is. It's so powerful. And you're right. Marlena is. She's unbelievable. An incredible leader, isn't she? And I know you've talked to her a couple of times. And there's another nurse, Carrie Noonan, um, works at the Brigham. Mm -hmm. So he's another um, Massachusetts nurse. I found that piece so powerful. And, you know, it's really they're, they're, they are talking about greed across the 
across the nation, this healthcare system that looks at the bottom line when we're trying to look at safety, like what makes people safer, safer, sorry. And, you know, we've said it a million times, but it really is true. If you have enough nurses taking care of you, when you put on that call bell, if a nurse answers it, then you're safer. But hospitals have have tried to, you know, shave off the, the nurses, the, the, or, or they shave off that there's not enough um, aides or um, unit clerks to answer the telephone. So you're answering the telephone, you're ans- um, uh, stocking supplies, you know, all of this is taking you away from the bedside, but all of it does make the bottom line look better. Let's face it. You know, it. So- the, the most powerful part of that story, is, and again, go Check it out at the Times. We know the real cause of the crisis in our hospitals. It's greed. Obviously, the big issue for you guys at St. Vincent was uh, the staffing ratios. Yes. Uh, and yes. I assume most patients would be on the side of the nurses saying the fewer patients you handle just makes sense. But they quantify it in the story. It was either in the Journal of the American Medical Association or Lancet, the equivalent in Great Britain, right. that said, correct me if I'm wrong, something like every additional patient – that a nurse cares for increases the mortality likelihood of another patient who that person's by 7%. Is that, is that right? I mean, yes, that is staggering. It's staggering. It's, and I think that it's the caveat is, you know, over four patients, I can safely take care of four patients for the most part on a medical surgical floor. But as soon as I having start having six and I start having seven, then it increases by by 7%, which is staggering considering, you know, a, a nurse on the shift is not going to break the hospital's bottom line, right? It really isn't. You know, you know, Tammy, I wondered too in schools, before the pandemic, you must have done a lot of things as a school nurse that you just can't do now because of the pandemic. So what are these kids not getting that you used to be able to do? Oh, yeah. And that's that's one of the things that I personally struggle with is is not being there with them like I used to. I used to be able to go into the classroom and just do that face to face. How are you today? Hey, I remember, you know, last week you had trouble with whatever it was. How are you feeling today? Um, You know, being able to to be that person for them, that if they're having an issue, they can come to me, um, you know, Anytime there's an emergency, obviously, I'm always there for it. Um, but I find that the, the staff or have the teachers in the room are having to pick up some of that extra slack, um, you know, and, and do the simple things for the kids. Try to manage the stomach ache or the headache or, or if there's a, a very minor injury. Whereas before, I would be able to delve a little deeper into why are you having a stomach ache? You know, is there something going on at home? Or how did you get that injury? You know, in, in doing that follow-up with them, I, I really miss having that opportunity to spend that time with them. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll get back there again. Tell me, how <laughs> um, hard it is it? Is. When you get up in the morning, you said, how long do you say you've been doing this? 16 years, that we said? 16 years, yeah. When you get up in the years. morning and know the crap you have to deal with, <laughs> as opposed to... How do you, I don't mean this, I mean, Marjorie and I have great jobs and we don't have that many tough days, frankly. And most days we're really pretty excited about coming in and doing what we do. When you wake up in the morning dealing with the mental, physical, psychological health of young people and you're feeling really crappy yourself, how do you, how do you get through the day? 
it's it I used to get up extra early because I absolutely love my job and I couldn't wait to get into work to see the kids and to be there and and help them and now it's come on you can do this let's do it again one more day it's day by day at this point it really is day by day um you know I I don't want to leave I really don't but I I've seen many of my colleagues leave other nurses you know other school nurses who have just said this is this is too much how long can we possibly maintain this um, so it's a day-to-day struggle. The kids definitely are, are what keeps me coming back. You know, they've, they've seen me struggle lately. They've seen me running through the building. You know, we have four flights of stairs here and I've never, I've never done so many stairs in my life. <laughs> um, and they make cards and they, you know, they show the appreciation and they, they, they really, they're what keeps me coming back every day. We'll get through this. How about you, Katie? We touched on this a little bit before, but this whole total burnout uh for nurses in hospitals it's a reality you know, Marge, could i just I, i'm not a school nurse i have and tammy has all my respect but you know so many of the school nurses have told me that they can't talk to their teachers about you know a child who has a seizure disorder a child who's a diabetic and maybe running into a low blood sugar you know at the at the peak of this when they were so you know doing all this testing and contact tracing and you know, I think, you know, early on when Tam- Tammy was, you know, letting us know about this, you know, what amazed me that DESI, you know, uh, Department of Educational and Secondary, Elementary and Secondary, Secondary Education, Education, believed that these nurses had an extra four or five hours in their day to do a second job, which has always amazed me. Um, and, I, and I'm sorry, I, I had to jump in about that. Sure. But, you know, actually, I have the best job in the world. you know what it's it's you know what continues it it continues to be a a privilege to do this job it it really does and I think there were times during the pandemic when I had moments of thinking that the wheels were going to come off the bus because I was in the COVID ICU at the at the during well for two years but it's, it, you know what it is, it's still a privilege to be able to maybe see somebody get off a ventilator, to see a, somebody go home, get to see somebody get to rehab. Um, you know, if, sorry. I was just going to say, I, I thought, you know, when we see people, unless you've seen someone in your own family and you're next to them, you don't see what it means to have COVID. We've come a long way since the beginning of this. But I, what you see is people that are kind of on ventilators or they're, they're, they're unconscious or they're heavily medicated. I, I know it's a problem because the privacy issues and not many people want to be on camera while they're right. gasping for breath. But I often thought if more of us saw what actually happened, we would not be as cavalier as some of us have been about COVID. What do you think? Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. If they saw, um, you know, five or six of us going in the room in full PPE and turning the patient over on his or her belly so that we could get, you know, a couple of days of them still being able to breathe. Yeah. If they saw that, right, maybe they'd run out and get a vaccination or make sure they were always wearing an N95 or at least a mask. And but you know, we, I guess we try to get that concept across to people and we ask them to trust us. We say, you know what, we're there, we're at the front lines. Please trust us when we say you can protect yourself against this. Katie and Tammy, we're glad you were here and we're glad you're there. Um, 
Thank you so much. I hope I hope you get a little bit of respite pretty soon, both of you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for all your work. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you. Katie Murphy is the president of the Massachusetts Nurses Association and a nurse at Brigham and Women's. Tammy Hale is a school nurse at Gates Lane Elementary School in Worcester. We thank again both of these women for taking the time to be with us. Coming up, even as Putin amasses more than 100,000 troops on the border of Ukraine, is there a diplomatic off-ramp or is an actual war on the horizon. Emily Channel Justice of the Temerty Contemporary Ukraine Program at Harvard joins us up next to discuss what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. You are listening to 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Marjorie. And Russia has amassed more than 100,000 troops on Ukraine's border as tensions royal and fears grow of a full-scale invasion. But is there still a window for diplomacy? And what would the invasion mean for Ukraine, a country with just 30 years of independence? Emily Channel Justice is the director of the Temerty Contemporary Ukraine Program at the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard. Their annual conference on Ukraine begins this afternoon, examining 30 years of Ukrainian sovereignty. Her study of the, of the Ukrainian people without the state, self-organization, and political activism in Ukraine is forthcoming. Emily, thanks for your time. It's really good to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. Yeah, it's, it's, thank you. I, I learned so much from uh, reading your pieces. I can't be the only one, as I said before we went on the air, with this level of ignorance about Ukraine. So tell us briefly part of the history that you co-authored pieces about, from the famine to banning the, the Greek Catholic Church to uh, the legacy of Chernobyl that has befallen this country. Yeah, you know, Ukraine has always been the really um, central country, really, to to the Soviet Union and to the Russian Empire before it. Um, Neither of those entities could have existed without Ukraine, and that's partly because of its large population, its proximity to Europe, its agricultural production. And so we saw throughout both the, the imperial period and the Soviet period, Um, many different mechanisms to take control over Ukraine. And the famine that you just mentioned, 1932-1933, Holodomor, as it's known in Ukraine, um, is one example of of a a forcible takeover of the Ukrainian territory. The after effects of the Chernobyl accident largely impacted Ukraine. Um, These are are things that at this, you know, at the the time in the Soviet period, they they were used to, to, to remove Ukrainian power and sovereignty from within. But now they're sort of seen as rallying points around which a Ukrainian national identity has been built. We survived these things. We can survive anything. Because from my reading, this was intentional on the part of Joseph Stalin, who, of course, was a horrible leader. He just three or four million Ukrainians, Ukrainians died, starved to death, and that was okay with him. Yeah, and the so we know that that this famine did affect many parts of the Soviet Union, um, but many historians argue that it was intentional to destroy the Ukrainian intellectual class um, because they were being persecuted by Stalin at the same time that these farmers were being removed from their lands, their lands were being taken over forcibly, and all the grain was being requisitioned to the center. So um, most scholars of Ukraine argue that this was an intentional um, general 
genocide by by the Stalinist regime to destroy Ukrainian nationalism at its heart. So Emily Channel Justice, from Stalin to Putin, uh, officials of the United States government said this weekend a uh, an invasion could be imminent. Is it? Well, we should certainly behave as if it is because we don't want to be surprised. We don't want to be taken off guard and and you know assume that nothing will happen because it doesn't make sense. Because if you think through the logics of a of an actual invasion of Ukraine, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. That doesn't mean it's not going to happen. I know that the Ukrainian government is, you know, urging caution. They they don't want people to panic. They don't want people um you know, to, to make We're not the Titanic with Zelensky's <laughs> yeah. uh, line. <laughs> yeah. He certainly has a way with words, doesn't he? <laughs> so, but, yeah. but I understand that. But what I don't understand is if Putin's uh, agenda is not to invade, is the sole purpose of this to be the center of attention in the world for a month or two or three, which we know he obviously likes? Is that he it? Certainly, he certainly does like it. I'm not sure. Um, I... I'm I'm skeptical that that would be enough. I know that the the diplomatic response where now all of a sudden Putin is getting meetings with all these world leaders, mm-hmm. that's the type of thing that he likes a lot, that kind of recognition. Um, I'm, I'm concerned about other potential territorial grabs that could be happening kind of under the radar, for instance. I mean, he's basically occupied part of Belarus with the Russian military. Right. You know, his ultimate goal could be a takeover of that country, which also had democratic protests um much of much of last year so it's possible that there's some ulterior motive we're not sure about it's also possible that he's absolutely just preparing you know for a full invasion of ukraine and and we should just expect that we're talking to emily channel justice she's a ukraine scholar at harvard um the i should get the right name temerity contemporary ukraine program there um there was a piece in the Washington Post. You know, we've heard, I, we, I don't think we ever heard about false flags until the Trump administration. Maybe I'm wrong, but I that's when I first noticed them, such as uh, the Sandy Hook massacre of those little children was a false flag with crisis actors. Well, this Washington Post piece talks about Moscow um, filming this false flag fake attack uh, against Russian soldiers by Ukrainians at the border, complete with, with graphic footage of dead bodies. So what's that about? You know, Putin actually has a history of using this false flag tactic. Um, it's uh, if you if you read, there's been a, a, a lot of really great books written about the, the Putin regime um, in the past few years, and several of them go into this, including Masha Gessen's book. Um, but but this is a tactic that Putin uses to justify harsh crackdowns. Um, it, it basically it's a way to make it justifiable to harshly respond to something that hasn't happened. We might know from our seats that it's a not a real thing, but that doesn't mean that most Russians know that. And so some of it is also an optics choice to convince his own people that he's doing the right thing. We have to keep in mind that Russian state TV is still the, the way most people in Russia get news is, is by television, not necessarily by finding out the truth by digging into these things online. Um, so it may just be a way to justify an invasion to his own people, which tells us also that he's a little concerned about public opinion here because he knows it won't be popular to bring a whole bunch of Russian soldiers into Ukraine where they're, you know, they're going to be very high casualties if, if this war actually happens. But Emily, what do we know from our own seats to use your expression? There was a terrific editorial in the globe over the weekend 
the title of which was Skepticism of U.S. Intelligence After Iraq Fiasco, It's a month, uh, a Must. And they talk about, obviously, Vietnam, Iraq, etc. And when an AP reporter asked the State Department spokesman last week about, can you give us some proof of, uh, of what you're suggesting from false flag on down, and Ned Price, who is this particular spokesperson, said, if you doubt the credibility of the U.S. government, of the British government, of other governments who want, want to, you know, find solace in information the Russians are putting out, that is for you to do. Uh, uh, that made me nervous when I, when I read it. Are we getting the straight story as far as you know here? Or is there also an agenda on the Biden administration's part? Yeah, I think this is a really important question to consider. I don't know what the agenda would be, but there are so many different versions of the story right now. I do think it is important to be cautious because, you know, we don't really know. Um, Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, has also said something to the effect of, I'm the one who's in Ukraine. Don't you think I know more than you do? Um, And that's part of how he's urged this caution. So he's seeming to indicate you know, that there isn't there isn't a ton of evidence or that the allegations of the U.S. and the U.K. are maybe not as as terrifying as we might think. Um, but that also, again, may just be because he's very concerned about making sure people don't panic at this at this moment. So um, I do think we should be a little cautious about, you know, what the actual information we're getting is. You know, I'm very curious about how Zelensky is doing. We both heard of him mainly during the first Trump impeachment trial. He was trying to coerce Zelensky to uh, uh, get dirt on the Bidens and all that kind of stuff. Uh, he's a very young guy. He was some kind of performer, an actor or comedian or something like that. And then he became the exactly. president. So do people like him? Is he doing well? Zelensky was elected with something like 73% of the vote, which is absolutely unprecedented in Ukrainian history. But his approval ratings are quite low at this point in comparison to when he was first elected. Um, You know, he's done a couple of things that he did say that he would do. He is the reason that this conversation that around NATO is happening, because most Ukrainians didn't support Ukraine joining NATO or even considering membership up until when Zelensky took power, because that was part of his platform. Um, So there has been a really significant social shift there that that matters in this instance. Um, In terms of internal reform, he's not doing as well as people hoped. He's he's really stagnated on things like judicial reform, um, which might sound a little bit boring, but is actually one of the more essential reforms that Ukraine is trying to do. Um, The judiciary is one of the really most corrupt institutions in Ukraine. Um, and, and things like that in terms of his relationship with oligarchs and the people who have economic power in Ukraine, you know, that has not gone the way that people hoped it would when they all voted for him. Um, but in terms of actually moving things forward, you know, with Russia, he actually pushed a few years ago when he first came into office, he was the one who was pushing new diplomatic talks with Russia, with the with the people who have claimed separatist Uh, territories in eastern Ukraine. So, you know, he did refuse to accept this stagnated non-peace that was happening in eastern Ukraine. Um, And so in that sense, he is a he is an important kind of motor in terms of where this story has gone in the past weeks. You know, uh, Emily Channel Justice, I hadn't thought about this till Marjorie mentioned the Trump uh, Zelensky, the infamous perfect call 
uh, thing. Your conference that I mentioned in the introduction that's going on all week uh, this week that uh, the, the keynote speaker is Yovanovitch, who obviously most of us had never heard of, former ambassador to Ukraine, who Trump went after and because she wouldn't uh, cooperate with this uh, scam uh, investigation of the Bidens that Trump wanted to happen. Is there any residual impact on U.S. Ukrainian relations from this sordid episode, or is it just a one and done with Trump? I think there is some residual impact, and I think that this is really terrible, honestly. I mean, Ukraine has been a country that had bipartisan support for independence when it became independent in 1991. And this is really the first time in U.S. history um, and Ukrainian history that there's been this division about supporting democracy in Ukraine. That's the fallout. And that has, I I personally think, and, and I'm not sure if this is widely agreed upon or not, but um, my impression is that Biden is a little bit cautious towards Zelensky because of this, because what we've seen is that Biden is willing to negotiate with Putin over what's going on in Ukraine. And Zelensky has not been the main person that he's talking to mm. about this. And many Ukrainians are highly, highly critical of this, right? Nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine is a refrain that we're hearing all the time because Ukraine is not the main negotiator. Putin is the main negotiator, but Ukraine is really caught in the middle and, and they're asking not to be. Can we talk about impacts for a second on both Putin and potentially in the U.S.? Because I assume that will in great part determine the actions of either country. We know that Putin met with President Xi from China a couple of days ago, and the reports were that the primary purpose was to, in the Putin's hopes, that his relationship with China, with China was such that whatever impact, negative impact, sanctions would have, which are the primary weapon that the United States and its allies have against uh, Putin's invasion, would be offset by uh, China. Is that is that real? I would think so. Um, I also urge a lot of caution about this because my... Um, my great fear is that Russian moves in Ukraine and the lack of Western response to first the annexation of Crimea in 2014 and whatever happens next is going to be precedent for something like a Chinese takeover of Taiwan or some, you know, bulking up of Chinese uh, claims in the South China Sea. This, these lack of, of responses to Russian violation of sovereignty actually sets a great precedent for China. And so Putin uh, cozying up to Xi right now kind of indicates that he's looking in that direction at the same time that all these, you know, Western diplomats are falling over themselves to try to stop him. His attention is, is somewhere else. Um, and that's, that's something also we should really be paying attention to. So um, what should, what should Biden be doing and what do the Ukrainian, what do you, the Ukrainians want him to be doing? Is there a consensus? Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, I don't know if, if I would call it a consensus. I think the main thing right now for Ukraine is is um, asking NATO not to change its open door policy. So that's really the main thing. You know, NATO currently allows anyone who would like to potentially join NATO to have that desire to work toward that goal. Russia has asked NATO to 
agree that Ukraine and Georgia would never be part of NATO. Um, so the main thing is really urging NATO not to change that policy, making it so that it, it is a possibility. Um, many Ukrainians are asking for, for military aid. Um, the U.S. has given Ukraine a fair amount of military aid in the past few years, including lethal military aid. Um, some people are asking for an increase in that. No one is asking, and I think this is really important for us to understand, nobody is asking for U.S. troops to be sent to Ukraine. Ukrainians would like to fight their own battles. Um, they just would like to be equipped to do that. So that's, that's you know, and I think there's a conversation to be had, you know, military aid is a complex thing um, in terms of how we aid Ukraine. I think also economic development aid, that sort of thing, kind of social investment, social programs and investment in economic development, um, that helps Ukraine on its path to NATO. So that's kind of where we want to be helping Ukraine out. And I also wonder what it's like to be sitting there waiting to be invaded for the, for the Ukrainians. I heard something on the news this morning where women are going to self-defense classes and stuff like that. So what are people well, doing? Before, before Emily answers that, the flip side that I saw on CNN over the weekend, mm-hmm. I didn't see the self-defense thing, is I can't remember who the re- reporter was, but the reporter is talking to a bunch of people at markets and other places yes. at a Ukrainian city that I think is only 20 kilometers away from where the Russian troops are. And they're acting like they're in SOA. I yeah. mean, and, you know, for <laughs> yeah. shopping for the, I mean, there's this, and it didn't seem forced. So what is real, yeah, Emily? What happening? is the attitude of particularly people closer to the potential action? Yeah, I mean, both, probably both of those are completely accurate. Um, It's people, the country was invaded in 2014. There have been Russian troops in Ukraine for almost eight years. This is not that different than what your average Ukrainian has been living for eight years. Um, The many Ukrainians that I've spoken to feel that the Western media is, is kind of the problem. They've hyped this up in a way that makes us afraid and most Ukrainians are not necessarily more afraid than they were before. Um, That being said, you know, I have also seen a lot of articles about people who are joining self-defense forces who are training, but remember, I mean, this has been going on for, for eight years. They've been doing these types of training. There has been, you know, medical tactical combat casualty care training that's been going on for all of this time, this is, to some extent, we are just seeing um, an increase in coverage of it because of what's going on. You know, a lot of people have been training for a long time, um, but I, there is certainly a ramping up of and a, a kind of new new uh, earnestness to, to those preparations. Last thing from uh, me, Emily Channel uh, Justice. Uh, I, uh, foreign policy is not exactly my strong suit. Let me uh, <laughs> let me proceed this, either. <laughs> this question. Uh, so that's why you're here, by the way, Emily, in case you haven't figured that out. I don't understand how we do reach a diplomatic out. As you said a minute ago, uh, uh, Putin's position is uh, uh, no, no NATO for Georgia, for Ukraine, etc., ever. Uh, And while my understanding is the NATO side, including us, say that Ukraine is not quite ready for NATO, it's got to clean up its internal corruption and all that sort of stuff. We can never say no, obviously, if we believe in democracy and spreading democracy and et cetera. So play diplomat, if you can, for a minute. What is the compromise uh, that both sides could reach both to save face and to end this? And this threat is there one? 
Yeah, I I have to believe that there is one um, because believing that war is the only answer is just too yeah. too dark to to accept. Um, I, I I think economic sanctions of a variety of kinds are, you know, they need to be used in a way that Russia believes that they will have an impact. Um, so you know, right now, my perception is that Putin doesn't really believe any Western countries will use the really strong sanctions that would actually impact not only the Russian economic elite, but your Russian and him. Right, exactly. He just doesn't believe that those things will happen. And so I think we really need to consider, you know, the actual sanctions. Um, there's a, an article in, in Politico a few weeks ago, really laying out what those sanction options were. It's a little over my head too, but um, you know, <laughs> they are there, they exist. Those options are, are available. Um, and, you know, I think there has to be, there has to be um, a way to, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I don't think that punishment kind of response sanctions are the, are really the right answer i do think it needs to be a kind of preemptive move to prevent putin from reinvading ukraine um you know the the issue of the nord stream 2 pipeline and, yeah. and kind of preventing that from coming online that would be really an effective way to show putin that that we're serious but not in a kind of military aggressive offensive yeah. kind of way i don't know if that's off the table at this point because germany, germany is such a strong negotiating partner and well, the chancellor is actually meeting with biden today is he not i believe i Schultz believe so is meeting with biden, yeah. yeah so maybe you know maybe that's still on the table um like we said before you know there's always the fear that putin then just turns toward china for you know getting yeah. whatever putin wants um, but the, the really, you know, the problem is that Vladimir Putin does not play by the same diplomatic rules as everybody else. He may fully well promise never to invade Ukraine and turn around and invade Ukraine. Yeah. That's why a diplomatic solution is hard. It's because it's because Putin does whatever he wants. Emily, this is great. Really appreciate yeah. your time. Thanks so much. Thank you. And yeah, thank um, you so good luck at your conference. Thank you very much for taking the time to be with us. Appreciate it. Emily, Absolutely. Emily Channel Justice is the director of the Temerty Contemporary Ukraine Program at the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard, and they're having their annual conference on Ukraine. It begins today, looking at 30 years of Ukrainian sovereignty. Her study of the Ukrainian people without the state, self-organization, and political activism in Ukraine is forthcoming. Thanks again to Emily Channel Justice. And coming up, the Reverend Zaria Monroe and Emma Price join us to take on the moral dilemmas of the day. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Marjorie, and join us now for All Revved Up are Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett Price. Reverend Monroe is a syndicated religion columnist, the Boston Voice for Detours, African-American Heritage Trail, and co-host of the All Revved Up podcast. Reverend Price, founding pastor of Community of Love Christian Fellowship at St. Olson, the inaugural dean of Africana Studies at Berkeley College of Music. Together, they are the All Revved Up podcast here at GBH. Welcome to both of you. 
Hey, thanks for having Happy us Happy Monday, folks. Yeah. And you to know, you. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Renee Graham had in one of her columns that Black History Month is about more than four people. So today, <laughs> today we have a fifth person. And um, many people may know, we've been talking for weeks about Melanie Cass Boulevard, Massachusetts Avenue. There was a, at the intersection of there and some streets around there, there was intensity. There were people that had mental illness issues, homelessness issues. Um, but Melania Agnes Cass herself was a huge figure um, in a whole bunch of areas in the city of Boston. So, Emmett, tell us a little bit about her and uh, why she got a boulevard named after her. Well, I mean, she got a boulevard because her her impact and her influence were so vast and wide that, you know, that's one of the ways to, to, to allow her to have that legendary watch over the Roxbury uh, neighborhood. She was known as the first lady mm-hmm. of Roxbury. And out of all the things that she did, and, you know, in addition to being a civil rights activist and community organizer, one of the things that I think she's not so recognized for um, is being a phenomenal mentor. When you think mm-hmm. about some of the folks who, who come up, you know, around the time she passed away in 1978, but through the 50s and the 60s, um, her influence on the folks who led the NAACP during the hot and heavy times of, of Boston and her influence on some of the young politicals and the ministers uh, who always looked up to her and, and just her impact on just being a loving, uh, compassionate, mm-hmm. kind and giving human being is literally why she got that <laughs> boulevard, you know, in addition yeah. to all the other things that she did. Yeah, yeah. You know, I wish I had the honor and chance to meet her. I mean, because she lived through various, you know, civil rights periods, you know, in greater Boston. So it makes me assume that she certainly at some point crossed paths with Martin Luther King and Coretta, Mm -hmm. then Coretta Scott King. But let me just tell you one of my problems when we name, you know, these boulevards and streets and highways after these wonderful, you know, black iconic figures in various communities. It's more about, to me, symbolism than substance. I think that what it really shows, it shows you not, it not only shows you issues around race, identity, wealth, and power, but I think it really dishonors the work that the people do. I really think that, you know, just recently, I think that if she was alive and saw what was going on in mass and cast for so long until, you know, Mayor Wu kind of cleaned up that area, she would be horrified. So I think that, again, that if we're going to honor these people, I mean, we got, I don't know, I don't know any, any city now that doesn't, wherever there's black people, there isn't an MLK Street Boulevard or Highway or Malcolm X or Adam Clayton Powell. But I think, again, we, we do a disservice in trying to honor them when we don't systemically change the disparities that they fought all their lives for. I'm with you. It's sort of like the Emmett Till uh, acknowledgement or whatever the hell it is that this pathetic Congress did. And then, of course, doesn't pass anything that would. In any case, you know, Irene, I want to start with you here because uh, you rarely give the, <laughs> the Pope any room. And here's my thesis. When I read about these two European cardinals, one of whom was uh, saying we have to be and this is almost a euphemism, much more welcoming to LGBTQ people. And another one says maybe it's time to end uh, uh, celibacy among priests. My thesis is there's not one chance in hell that either of them would have said this without at minimum the nodding approval of the boss, the pope. How about it? (laughs) You think so, huh? I think so. Well, then. 
Yeah, well, I think this is church politics. I mean, I think one of the things we got to look at again, I, and we talked about it very briefly, that in 2023, the Senate meets. And the whole idea was that, that the, the priests and, and certainly the higher ups were supposed to go out and get a sense of what are the concerns of the people. So now listen, just in January, we brought up a couple of issues to give us this illusion that there's going to be this kind of ecclesiastical shift in the Catholic Church. The Pope writes this, writes to a controversial nun. I think her name was, uh, Janine, uh, Gramic. Do you remember thanking her for 50 years of ministry? Yes, I do actually. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right. So, but this is just in, from January to now. We have talked about the Vatican and now thinking about ordaining, you know, or, or, you know, ordaining, uh, women, right? And then wait, the, or, the then the most r- ridiculous, uh, recommendation. Dorothy Day. Now, m- the reason why I say it is ridiculous, and you know, she's known for, for sainthood. Wor- workers. Yeah. Right, for sainthood, right? Because my point is, is that if you cannot, you cannot canonize Mother Teresa, all, everybody else, all other women are just off, off the table here. So I just think, again, that we got to understand when these opportunities to voice this, you know, comes about. They heard us, they listened, and they disapproved. They go back to usual. How about it there, Emmett Price? You a little more hopeful or no? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, w- I want to be hopeful, but this is a clear case of two guinea pigs trying to run off the, off the course. I mean, you know, so clearly um, in this season, this pope is more, and I, I don't know if this means anything, but more liberal than any other pope in, you know, in at least our history as human beings, um, at, at least the time we've been on the planet. And I think everyone who was trying to get something in, and Irene is right, this, you know, 2023 Senate, to get on the docket, to get at least some airtime, uh, uh, to, to, to get a little piece on the agenda, I think everybody's going for it. And it'll be interesting to see what actually gets, you know, uh, put on the agenda. What lands? Yeah, yeah <laughs> but but Emmett, do you think? Getting back to what I posed to uh, to uh, Irene a minute ago, do you think these two? I don't know these guys from a hole in the wall, except I know that one guy was in trouble for not being tough enough on what we talk a lot about uh, uh, sexual violence uh, in the uh, in the church, uh, which is one of the reasons he's, I guess, suggesting an end to celibacy might be part of the solution. I'm not sure it is, but in and of itself, it's a good idea. You think they'd say these kind of things without the Pope's? Uh, uh, at least tacit blessing? No, I think the Pope <laughs> gave a wink, wink, you know, yeah. and, 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 mm-hmm. and turned around. Mm-hmm. And that's why I called them guinea pigs, because in many ways, yeah. they almost been set up to to take the fall if there's a fall and to be heroes if that's they right. become heroes. Right. It, it, and he's a consummate flip-flopper. Come on now. So the point is, is that he's not going to censor anything that is coming down the pipe right now. I mean, because he wants to always give this appearance of being a kind of liberal, at, you know, at least in terms of lip service. But there's not going to be any action. Do you know what I say to you, Irene? Irene, who are you to judge? That's what I say. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I judge because I am gay. I judge because I am gay. And that the priest, I mean, we wouldn't have a Catholic church were it not for our gay priests. I mean, we need to tell the truth and shame the devil on that. So totally my point right. is, is that... That you know, you denigrating the very people. You, I mean, you're 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 denigrating the gifts that this huge body of faithful, you know, worshippers bring to the church. And as I've always said, 
You know, gay people love Jesus as much as straight people. That should be an amen from you people. Amen. Uh, <laughs> I'm talking to Irene Monroe and Emmett Price. The oh, I just want to make sure one thing. Mother Teresa is a saint, isn't she? she yeah, they made her a she saint. She is, yeah. yeah. Okay, I just, I just thought we, we, we were um, misleading about that. Okay, she's a saint. Okay, so let's move on to another um, story. This is, <laughs> this is another great headline. Uh, from Renee Graham in the Globe. She doesn't write the headlines, but she wrote the column. The headline is great. America's national pastimes, football and racism. And I Mm. chuckled, not because it was funny, but it sort of was a very succinct way of talking about the racism that is in football, not to mention the whole rest of the country. So I know you're boycotting the NFL, uh, Emmett. Um, Maybe more of us should be following your lead. Tell us. (laughs) Come on over here. The water is warm and it's nice. I mean, you know, what what gives? You go from Colin Kaepernick now to Brian Flores and these text messages that are flying around. And and the notion that not only is, is the NFL, in my words, a slaveocracy, but the plantation yeah. owners want to keep it that way. And and so, you know, it, this is horrible. This is, you know, I don't have yeah. to watch the NFL to, to pay attention to what's going on. And this is absolutely horrible. Yeah. You know, but well, can we, know, before, I, Irene, before you speak, I said to Marjorie this morning, and admittedly, it's still six days in advance. So who knows if I'm going to live up to my pledge. What did I say to you this morning, Marjorie? That, you, ha- that you were boycotting the Olympics and you were boycotting the, the NFL. The right. Super and Bowl. as I was, oh. I was self-aware. Wait, yeah. but wait, Irene, don't be nice to me yet. Because I was self-aware <laughs> enough to say it's only two days into the Olympics. And who knows what I'll do in the next six days. But Emmett, I'm telling you... Uh, I was thinking about you a lot over the weekend about this. Uh, I interviewed uh, one of Flores's lawyers the other night. So you have, a, I, I think, unequivocal racism, not that we knew it didn't exist, but proven in terms of coaches. The same weekend we learn that Dan Snyder, the misogynist owner of the uh, formerly called Redskins, who would never have changed the name were it not for the fact that FedEx said, I'm not going to give you money anymore for your stadium, has (laughs) paid his videographers to get uh, the cheerleaders in positions where they'd be exposed and to make a video of that, not to mention the culture of misogyny in his organization. You then read about the $100,000 alleged $100,000 tanking offers by the owners of Miami. And you say to yourself, if you're a person of principle, now it's easy for me to say now, considering I was always on the other side of this thing, even though I theoretically agreed with them. How do you watch, how do you, how do you watch a sport where this sort of behavior is going on. So after, what is it, X, L, V, I, whatever it is, I'm with Emmett. How about you, Irene? (laughs) Okay, well, two things. I did watch the opening ceremony of the Olympics, which was grand and spectacular, I have to say. This this coming week uh, is Super Bowl, and I can't wait uh, for uh, halftime because I always enjoy that the best here. Um, and I also, it's sort of like this, it puts me in this quandary. It, it's sort of like you could be against the war, but you're for, you're for, you know, the troops here. And so the troops here are black men because they comprise of 70% of the players. It is disheartening to know that out of what, 32 teams, I think we only got one coach here. One. I mean, the, the, one, yeah. I, 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 we, we understand that that's, that's crazy. I mean, it's right that it's a sort of, you know, present-day form of a slaveocracy, but the, the point is, is that we are not to sort of denigrate the effort and the hard work for these black and brown players um, to make it to the NFL. 
And and they're hoping at, at some point that these discriminatory um, hiring practices will be changed by virtue not only of number, but the insistence that with the George Floyd moment being an inflection point, uh, that it will definitely bring about change here. But what is well, the way? What is the evidence that the other than bottom lines, a la FedEx and Snyder? What is the evidence and, that they have any desire to change and anything? Also, just as there Renee Graham points out in her piece, where are the white players and coaches who were all right. making these Great big statements point. about George Floyd uh, saying that this is this is disgraceful and we should be changes? Bill Belichick, he was the texting guy. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. that is a great point. We have I mean, unless I've missed something. We no, haven't heard haven't, them, have we? You haven't yeah. missed anything, no, no, Marjorie. No. You haven't missed the fact that they partnered with Jay-Z in order to bring mm-hmm. exactly. hip-hop in the rap community right. to, to do even more to market and, and get this, you know, the, the league into the quote-unquote inner cities, you know, quote-unquote hood. You haven't missed the fact that they have just used Lift Every Voice and Sing in order to mm-hmm. put about window dressing right. o- over all of this slanderous and, and you know, you know, uh, just horrific vitriolic behavior. So you haven't missed anything, Marjorie. You haven't missed yeah, but, anything. You know, but, but, but nothing is new. I mean, we know this. I think even the football players know this, that the whole idea of black labor, we're here to dribble a ball, throw a ball, or catch a ball. I think in terms of black labor, whether it's in the form of entertainment or sports, becomes a kind of way of showing that you see we have in, we have let you in but it's not about any ascendancy to any real power even though some of these folks some of these players have made got million dollar contracts but we we see the disparity even when they retire because there's this whole disparity about receiving health benefits if you show signs of dementia i mean they got two grids on that so so until we can all rise up, meaning all black and brown players say, well, we've had enough and we're not playing, that's only the way that we could have a sea change. By the way, can I just describe what Irene just – for those who aren't familiar with it, this is called race norming. And the essentially the NFL acknowledged they were doing it and theoretically changed it. This was for the concussion victims that when they were deciding how much out of this pot to give them, the issue was where did they start cognitively – and where did they end up? And obviously, if the gap is greater, then they would get more compensation. Well, race norming lowered the cognitive grades pre-concussion of black players so that when they suffered cognitive loss because of the repeated hits to the head, the reward would be less. So, I mean, it's just it is just it's almost you can't even say the words that they could be doing this kind of thing. And I, I, I'm almost embarrassed that it's taken me this long. To uh, to join Emmett's, but, it's not even a crusade. But you it's know what, though, whatever it is, he's what, doing. Jim, yeah, you know, it's now, it's now, it's now important that the, the that the, that the players realize that there's a knee on their neck, and until they move, then there can't be any movement, really. So they have to now become, you know, uh, unionized to to really affect change. There's not, I mean, if they're going to play every Sunday. A lot of folks will continue to turn on their television no, I agree. because this is agree. American pastime. So it, unless there is, no, no offense, a blackout, okay, then we will, we will then say, uh-oh, what do we do now to bring about the change that we've been talking about since blacks have integrated football? 
Well, I'm with you, but the fans can take a lead like Emmett did years ago and whatever. So, And by the way, for those who are new to the show, Emmett's a big football fan, so this is not like he just forsook. <laughs> forsook? Yeah. Is that a word? Forsook? Whatever it is, yeah. gave up on something that he didn't care about. He cared about it a lot. We're talking to Emmett Price and Irene Monroe. So lots of people have heard about uh, the uh, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, some other uh, big, big yeah. superstars in the music industry d- took their music off Spotify because of Joe Rogan's misinformation uh, about vaccines. Now he's gotten in trouble because he ha- this, someone has put together this podcast where he repeatedly uses the N-word. And here we have some sound from Rogan apologizing on Instagram for using the N-word after Spotify uh, removed more than 70 episodes from his podcast, from the platform. Here it is. There's nothing I can do to take that back. I wish I could. Obviously, that's not possible. I do hope that, if anything, that this can be a teachable moment. Now, he said that these (laughs) these repeated uses of the N-word were taken out of context. He said he never used it to be racist. He says he's well aware of that now, that he shouldn't use the word at all, but for years used it, as he said, explaining how it was used by other figures. So do you buy it, Emmett? Oh, I, it, it was never for sale to me, I, I, Marjorie. You know, I, you know, I, think, I think this is an absolute teachable moment of why not to give uh, people your agency and too much of your energy. I think it's clear That's that right. he's a provocateur. Um, I think it's mm-hmm. absolutely clear that in this nation, you can say whatever you want to say, you can do whatever you want to do. And that's a good thing. I'm 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 not a censoring person, um, but, but he certainly was not talking to me on either side. And and you know his apology can go to Irene because I don't need it. Um, <laughs> but wait, 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 Emmett, Emmett, though, come on now, Emmett, work with me on this, okay? Work with Emmett me. and I differ on this. Yeah, work with me, Emmett, really. So this is the problem I have with it. One of the things that he says now, really, is he says that well, I'm using it because you know. You know, comedians like, you know, uh, Red Fox and, and, and Richard Pryor had used it. So this is my problem with it. If you, you can't expect that black people, African-Americans, you use the word and then yet not expect white people to use it because it sets up a double a, a double a double standard. Language to me is a public enterprise. So it's so not one particular group has property rights of it, I think. If you don't want the word be used, don't use it because using it the the way that we think it's it's a, a term of endearment. Because I've heard kids say to me, "Look, I'm not using er, I'm using ar." You cannot conjugate the n word. The point is, is that it is rooted and embedded in a racist history. We can't disassociate ourselves from it. But let me tell you the problem with this. Word. It's an enduring word. Because in 2003, I remember the NAAC did a mock funeral and Jesse Jackson was at it. But in 2008, we catch Jesse Jackson on a hot mic using the N-word talking about Obama. I mean, go figure. So you don't want it. You don't want it. Don't use it. Hey, Irene, let let me tell you what I'm I'm learning. And I'm learning this from you. you. What you said is right on the money for you. Now, I have learned that when a woman <laughs> calls another woman the B word, uh-huh. just because she says it to her as a term of infection don't mean that I can say it. And I'm going to stop right there. Right. So who am uh-huh. I to think that because somebody says that to somebody else because of their proximity and intimacy and relationship or whatnot, that I can jump in and do the same thing. Red Fox yeah, was well, Red that- Fox. Richard Pryor was Richard yeah. Pryor. Joe Rogan is not. 
Yeah, point but blank. the point about it is, is that we respond to the N-word quite differently than we do the B-word, although I don't use the B-word and don't like it either. But I just think that these claiming these racist words don't eradicate its historical baggage. I mean, it, it keeps the hurt and the harm alive. But I need to say this, because we are people who have been called Negroes, colored, black, you know, African-Americans. But the real truth is that we have always been before they named us. We were always Africans in America, and that term has always worked for me. On that note, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> Gentlemen and ladies, thank you both. Good to see you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Thank we you. saw Emmett Bye-bye. in a suit today. You know, I was just He's thinking when I see He's looking fine, you, let me you, tell you. But you know, in the pandemic, you see so few people in suits, right? Because everybody's like at home. So the suit has still got it going, I think. I yeah. think so, too. Thank you very much you uh, for being with us here today. The Reverend Larry Monroe uh, is a syndicated religion columnist and the Boston voice of Detour's African-American Heritage Trail and co-host of the All Revved Up podcast. Emmett G. Price III, in a suit, is founding director, founding pastor, excuse me, of Community of Love Christian Fellowship in Alston and the inaugural dean of Africana Studies at Berkeley College of Music. Together, they host the terrific All Revved Up podcast. Okay, coming up. Need some help having the dreaded talk with your kids? You know which one, the sex talk. Parenting writer and humorist Kara Baskin joins us to talk about how we can do that. You are listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Marjorie and Jim Browning. In a few minutes, we're going to take your calls on the talk. When you had it, how you handled it with your kids, or how your parents gave you all you need to know about sex, or or not. But first, we're joined by Kara Baskin. Kara's a food and parenting writer for the Boston Globe, humor writer for McSweeney. She wrote about this recently in the Globe. And for those who always wonder about the difference between me and Marjorie, I wanted to talk to Kara about food. Marjorie wanted to talk about sex. <laughs> Nevertheless, Kara, welcome to the show. It's great to see you. We can you. do both. Uh, we, we are going to do both. Exactly. We can do both. We can do both. But I'm on the coin toss. We're going to start talking about <laughs> sex. Right. So, I mean, uh, this is a dilemma for every parent. You know, how do you have the talk? And you had some great um, advice from a, from in, in your piece about how to talk about sex too soon, too late, too awkward, et cetera. So what's the deal? What should we be doing? Oh, so that's such a good question. The reason I started to write about this is because my parenting column is geared for kids under 12. And I was fielding a lot of questions from parents being like, am I going to shatter their innocence if we start talking too soon? They start to have health um, curriculum in about fifth grade. Feels a little young, but really it's not young at all. Like there's never too soon to start talking about doesn't necessarily have to be um, intimacy, but even just laying the groundwork for, you know, what does a respectful relationship look like? How do you respond to other people? Um, and then from there, you can get a little bit more advanced and talk about, you know, what your body starts going through in puberty and whatnot. And one of my favorite pieces of advice, because like no kid wants to think that their parent is like any gender or knows what sex <laughs> is, or like, is an human, you can say, you know, all developed people go through this and kind of make it a little bit uh, scientific so they don't have to picture you. So but it's it, never too soon. How do you deal with, if we can cut to the, I think the most difficult thing, which I, our yes. parents didn't have to deal with, at least to the degree right. now, how do you deal with the likelihood that they're going to go to some free porn site at like age right. seven yeah. and be right. checking it out? What do you do about and that? Hey, well, aren't you so glad that we didn't grow up in the age of social media? Like it's bad yes. enough to- 
Yes, 12 I'm glad. 13 years old. Um, I think that, you know, first you have to come to terms with, yes, you know, anything you tell your child is probably something they've seen or heard before. So better that they hear it again from you instead of getting information from their friends. But also the other thing too, is that kids at this age are impressionable. Yes. But they also, um, especially if you're talking to kids who are under 12, like this is your last gasp where they're still going to trust you instead of, (laughs) right? Like once they hit junior high and all bets are off. So best to preempt the conversation, understand that, yes, they are going to see things, um, accept it. Don't pretend that it's not going to happen and confront it um, head on. I know that my son, I think his, when they were doing Zoom school last year, it got hacked by like a, uh, I don't even know. There was like some sort of thing. But here's the other thing. And this is what I noticed with my son too, is like on the other hand, they just might not, like they may be more unfazed than you think. So really take your cues from your children. Um, They might ask you and come to you with questions, but in the case of my son, he's still young enough that I want to bring it up to him, but he's like not ready to hear it. And I just have to take my cues from that. And that's what a parent should do. Don't force it if they're not ready, but also expect that, yeah, they're probably going to see something. And if they have questions, answer them. Well, you know, I, I I know there's a lot of parents that don't even like sex ed in the schools. I could never understand this because it's, you can have the values discussion with your kids, you know, you would have a serious enough relationship and don't get hurt and blah, 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 or don't never have sex until you're married, which I think is uh, rather unusual these days but in any case you know why yeah. why don't parents want to get let off the hook because if they start this discussion right. in fifth grade then you don't have to worry about a lot of this stuff because your kids come yeah. home and tell you what they learned and you think that's pretty impressive i had no <laughs> idea about any of that in fifth grade you know what i mean I I think that people can confuse education with encouragement. It's not like you're going yeah. off and telling kids like go procreate. It's really, you know, there's also other things that they're being taught, which is going to happen whether they hear about it in school or not. Like you're going to get your period, whether somebody tells you about it in fifth grade in the classroom <laughs> or your friend tells you about it at camp. It is going to happen. <laughs> That's um, right. Can't deny it. <laughs> Unfortunately. So what, and you also believe there's a role for books. Marjorie knows I've told the story Absolutely. before. It's totally true. My father, who I, I was not exactly a model uh, father, <laughs> what he did is he found some book on sex. He underlined with a Sharpie or whatever they were called in those days. Honest to God, this is true. He opened the door (laughs) to my room and literally threw it at me uh, and said, read this if you have any questions, get back to me kind of thing. That's not what you're talking about. I assume a book is intended to be a supplement for a conversation with a human, right? Jim, my husband's father drew him a diagram and I can think of nothing. I don't even know what a diagram would like if there was (laughs) angles and arrows. I don't know. I think that a book is fine because as one of the experts who I, who I interviewed, Tony Rayo, who's a wonderful child psychologist, doesn't just let you off the hook, but it's something that kids can refer to on their own time. On their so own. I got my son a book about puberty. I mean, I don't think that he really is going to be reading it for fun late at night, but there will come a time when he does want to read it and he can do that without having to come to me. He can do it when he feels curious. Okay, so it's little, putting the empowerment back in their hands. A in a little bit. while, we're going to be talking to uh, our listeners about how they dealt with the talk or the multiple talks with their kids. But there's some, a couple of other great things that you wrote mm-hmm. I wanted to talk to you about. And one of them I really, and by the way, we're talking to Karen Baskin. She's a food writer and parenting writer for the Boston Globe and a humor writer uh, for McSweeney's. This psychiatrist that you interviewed, I just loved him. We were talking about mental health of kids uh, during the pandemic, and he used a phrase which I think is so 
helpful to parents, which is you just have to be a good enough parent during yeah. the pandemic. Yeah. So tell yeah. us, tell us what advice you had for dealing with your kids' crises during this time. Oh, okay. So we're going into this is a non-sex. This is like a mental health. Overall yeah, we're moving from we're moving theory. from sex yeah. to mental health. That's right. Yes, that's that's a natural segue. I think. Um, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that parents, and especially, I mean, it all comes back to social media. So often with parenting in the in this day and age, we see people who are like at the top of their game, posting at the top of their game, curating their lives so much. And I think also my generation came of age as being very achievement oriented and wanting to read all the books and do all the right things. And okay, there's something to be said for that. But honestly, like if you are giving your child and this, I know exactly the psychiatrist you're talking to He's at children's hospital. He deals with kids who are dying of cancer. Yeah. They have real problems. Not to say that COVID is not a real problem. It is. But if you're giving your kid consistent love, shelter, food, some sort of predictability, you're not screwing up. It is okay if they're on an iPad a little bit extra. It's okay if not every single day is filled with enrichment. Like, let yourself off the hook a little bit. You are not going to damage your kids for life. What is going to damage your kids for life is if you're so stressed out trying to do everything perfectly that you are burnt out and not being, you know, steady and resilient for your kids. Well, you and know, I, was so realistic. I, I did think, I did think there was a little bit of, we got to get real and toughen up here a little bit. You know, yeah. the, 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 fa- the fact that your kid is not going to be able to go to Disney World or on a ski trip or even off to uh-huh. a birthday party because of COVID. Yeah. I mean, it's not the American tragedy of huge proportions and that maybe we oh. need to have a little bit of perspective, which I thought was so great about this piece. Yeah. And I mean, okay, except that it's a disappointment. Don't deny to your child that they shouldn't be sad. They're human. It's okay to be sad, but they are not these delicate Fabergé eggs that if the Disney vacation is postponed for a year, their childhood is going to be ruined. Maybe if you make it so, (laughs) and you're so upset that they take their cues from you, but life will go on and you have to model that sort of resiliency and that sort of, you know, suck it up a little bit. I hate to be harsh, but it's, it's true. And, but COVID is so hard. I'm not denying that, but you have to be the role model as a parent um, and, you, and not, you know, you have to put things in perspective a little bit. And when he talks about um, supporting and validating your kid, yeah, what does that mean? So if a child comes to you and is like, let's use the birthday party example, you know, they're very upset that they can't go to a friend's birthday party because their friend has been in quarantine for a hundred weeks or whatever, and they can't go okay, you know, I recognize that you're sad. You don't have to come at it and say, you know, don't be sad about it. You can go, you know, you'll go next week or validate it, understand it, hear them, but then come back with, but, or, and we could do this instead. You can put a sort of silver lining spin on it. You don't have to take away or invalidate their sadness, but their sadness isn't the end of the world. It is not your job as a parent. I don't think to make your child happy a hundred percent of the time. Okay. Kara Beskin, let's go back to sex for one more minute before we get to food. (laughs) I missed the beginning. (laughs) Did you say at the beginning, what was the appropriate age to start these conversations? What what is it? There's no appropriate, like, it's not like they hit five and you sit them down at the edge of the bed. That is one really important thing. It's a series of ongoing talks. There's not like the 1980s version of, you know, a rom-com where the parent sits at the edge of the bed and has the big talk with the child. It starts as soon as they're old enough to ask questions. Like they're watching a cartoon and they see a boy who's all dressed in blue and a girl dressed in pink. And you can say, you why do you think that is? And do you think that's accurate? Start, start small with conversations that occur in everyday life and keep going in a development mentally appropriate age appropriate way it's not just one it's not like your dad throwing a book at you or my father-in-law drawing a diagram 
It's well, you know an ongoing love, conversation. You know what I loved in your story too, when 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 you said, "Well, you know, sometimes a little kid, your kid may say, well, mommy, where do babies come from?'" <laughs> now they yeah. don't necessarily want you to draw a diagram of genitalia in action. No. They might wonder if it's what from the supermarket or from. Right, and I don't want to be doing that either. But it, right, like you may think that they have a certain question, and you might be projecting a little bit. Um, my younger son thinks that he was made of clay. Like Play-Doh play. <laughs> That's fine, you know? So you don't need, you know, you ask only, or you respond only as far as the questions go. You know, you take your cues. I said it before. You take your cues from them. Um, their questions might be a lot more innocent than you suspect. That's right. We're talking to Kara Baskin, a parenting and, and I emphasize the end, food writer for the Boston Globe. <laughs> Can we talk food for a couple of minutes? You have yes, one the- and I have to give, I'm going to pause you for one minute to give a shout out to the best food editor. People love our food section, and it's all because of our editor, Christine Morris. She's very, very oh, By the way, your good. food section is totally great. However, you have one of the best and worst beats of them all. The best beat is because food right. and restaurants are fabulous. The bad is you're one of the people who updates people on closings. I mean this seriously. <laughs> How hard yeah. is that when you're listing around? I don't know if you have if you haven't read this portion of the thing. You know how long they've been around. They include a oh, quote yeah, from yeah. the owner, the restaurateur, yeah. why they're doing it, what you're missing, etc. How hard is this when you're writing about a place that mattered to you personally? Um, it, that's the thing. I mean, it's it's we. That's why we do this list that way. We try to go behind kind of just the quick update and give a little bit of a personal spin it's hard these are people's livelihoods and in most cases they're the small independent businesses yeah. often you know who the chef is it's their livelihood that's on the line and it's it is it's really sad it's hard to watch what's happening there are a lot of new places opening too so that's good but it's not fun it's not been a fun beat to cover it's been a busy beat to cover but not so fun and are you uh, just for a bit, little bit of prognostication the weather's breaking this week is this a yeah. race to spring Right now, for those who are, I'm serious, for the restaurants that are hanging by a thread, and we've spoken to a, less, a lot of restaurateurs who were saying those kinds of things, is this sort of, we just need to be able to open the outside, hopefully whatever the city, yeah. the state allows us to have outdoor dining, which I assume they will. Is it or no? Yeah. And, you know, I got to tell you, a lot of places are doing outdoor dining for those who are comfortable, even yeah. now. Yeah. I saw it. I mean, yeah. you can I saw it last it. night. Last yeah. night they had really good heaters, like like that were up to the to feet to knees, and then they had a lamp with a heater in it coming down from the top, Where'd so it really was warm. Washington Square Tavern in Brookline. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, so yeah I, people were eating outside. I was at Barenza in Harvard Square. Shout out to Barenza; they're very good. They have a similar um, setup. But so yes, in some ways a, a race to spring. But I got to tell you that a lot of the chefs I talk to are like people are are out again. I mean, really, I don't want to say that businesses are bouncing back, but I think businesses are busier than they have been. Yeah. So spring will be a welcome change, I'm sure. But I think the places, you know, they're they're seeing a, a little bit of an uptick in some cases. By but the way, before been- you leave Barenza, I want to do a yeah. shout out. Don't I believe we got an email from one of the women who works there. They're a Vax mandate place. Are they not, if I remember correctly? Um, I don't want to speak for them, but I believe so. I'm going to check while you and Marjorie are talking. So we're talking to Kara Baskin, parenting and food writer for the Boston Globe. And you also have Martha Demise of Matt Murphy's Pub. I live in Brookline. That's why I knew it, because that's also in Brookline. And yeah. that, you know, it was a small, they used to have Irish music and their live Irish music and a great brunch and stuff. But it was small. And I think that that probably was really hard for them because they just Hard. did not have room 
I know. And I did this piece about Harvard Square and the changing face of Harvard Square and how many businesses have gone out there. And I got a lot. People are so attached to their neighborhoods. Yes. I, you know, it's hard. It's hard to walk around and see these empty storefronts. It's not just about the food. It's like about where you had a first date or got engaged or celebrated something. It's about your memories. That makes it it adds another layer of sadness, I think. So. So, so you also had another piece about um, newcomers uh, yes. that oh, people no. are driven in crazy about by these certain words, uh, like yes. calling a milkshake a frat. Now, I, oh. I didn't grow up here. I grew up in Fall River, but I remember when, it, which is fifty miles south of here, we, we it wasn't a frat unless it had ice cream in it. We had the plain old milkshake, and then if you yes. added ice cream, it was a frat. But apparently, this is there's a lot of debate and consternation about milkshake versus frat. Oh my goodness. Someone literally, Marjorie, before I just got on this call with you, someone emailed me and said, you are history's greatest monster <laughs> if you call <laughs> a, a, a milkshake a frap. This People feel very, very strongly about a lot of these things. Frap is one of them. Another one, I guess, that's only in Boston. I didn't realize that, and I'm from here, is all set. Like if all, you're all set. set with I'm yeah. all set. Yeah. Nobody knows what that means. Switch the wash. People are responding to this story in droves. It's like it's hit a chord. How about not for nothing? Isn't not What's for that? nothing a New England kind of thing, too? Um, I don't know. But so don't I. So like, don't I. That, like, that's the one I was. So don't right. I. What's like, the like Barenza? So don't I. <laughs> so wait a second. Where does so don't I come from? Do you have any idea? I don't I never understood the concept or the execution. It's a grammatical got, error. I, I, I have no idea, but like I say in the people, like we're the most educated state, but then we have these like nonsensical linguistic oddities that I can't explain. But yeah, oh my god, yeah, it, it, I'll I'll call it a packy. Now that is is yeah, a, you call it a packy, yeah, packy. But then you ever the spa, you go to the spa and you don't get a manicure at the spa, you go and get some cigarettes at the spa. <laughs> So that's I don't right. Know. And Very a turkey bizarre. sandwich and, a, and a, a wicked, wicked. That's that's I mean, I don't even know. Is that I mean, unique to us? I think that's very unique to us, as is um, the what was it? Frost heaves. People were so confused when you see the sign frost heaves and then tonic. Obviously, there's just mm-hmm. like nobody else. Nowhere else quite like it. But wait a second. No one says tonic, do they? I mean, I know that's the line. Yeah. Normal yeah. people, no, they don't. I, oh, yeah, I heard that a lot growing up. Tonic. I heard, like, no, I understand tonic, that. Tonic. All really old people call it tonic. My nana, would, okay. my nana would call well, it Well, I, I assume yeah. a fairly old person, if uh, you're yeah. a nana. So, but normal people, I don't mean normal like old is not normal, but people of <laughs> young and middle age do not use the term tonic no. in greater Boston, right? No, that's probably true. Yeah, I, I haven't heard it for a long time. No, I'm a Philly. I'm a Philly kid. We have our own. Yeah. By the way, when I came here, when I moved here, I didn't even. And I'm telling the truth. I knew what a hoagie was, as we call it in Philadelphia. (laughs) I had no idea what a sub was until I lived here for a little while. Hoagie is. is, People call them grinders. Grinders. Yeah, grinders. Exactly. Now, didn't you want to know before we depart here about comfort food, Jim? Weren't you concerned about? Yeah, I I read your. We actually, I think we talked about your comfort food thing on the other thirty comfort foods. I think you wrote that with Deborah first. Who'd you write that with? No. Oh, my my dear friend and colleague Deborah first. And, and I paired you, up for that. You yeah. didn't rank them, did you? They weren't ranked, were they? Or no, were they? we have tried to do rankings, but that can get a little bit tricky. And like, it's apples and oranges, like mapo tofu and mac and cheese. It's hard to rank things like so that. You, so if good. I ask you to rank your top one or two, you're not going to do it? Oh, you don't my have top to. One or two. Well, or, I will say my top, I can give you my top one. Oh, actually. please do it. 
I will. So Baldwin Bar, um, it, well, there's one of two places, either Sichuan Gourmet or Baldwin Bar, both of which are north of the city. One is in Burlington, one is in Woburn. They have the best Mapo. Both of them have excellent Mapo tofu. Wow, and that's that pretty good. It's great. It's always Chinese on Beacon Street, too, in Sarville. It is totally, it is fabulous. Now, can we talk about sex for a few? No, actually, we're out of time, (laughs) unfortunately. Darn, I'm so sorry. Next time. Kara, it was great to see you. Thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thank Thank you you. very much. And thanks for your great stuff. We love having you. You bet. Kara Baskin is a food and parenting writer. Baskin, I should have said, singular, is a food and parenting writer for the Boston Globe and a humor writer for McSweeney's. Uh, You're listening to Boston Public Radio. And as we said, we're going to open the lines when we come back and talk to you about talking to your kids about sex. How do you do it? Do you hope the schools take it off your plate? You don't have to worry about it? Do you throw them a book and then shut the door? Or do you sit down and have the big talk? That's next on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and uh, Marjorie Egan. We just heard from Kara Baskin at the Globe about having the talk with chi- with children. Now we turn to you. When, if ever, did you have the talk with your parents or with your kids? How did it go? What do you wish you'd learned or known? And do you have any advice? Really, this is about advice to other parents about how to do the talk with their own kids at 877-301-8970. You can email us if you're too embarrassed at bprwgbh.org. Uh, you know, Kara t- wrote in her piece, we didn't uh, talk to her about it when she was just with us, but she said she brought her fifth grader, trying to be a modern mom, a book about uh, that many parents recommended called Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Puberty and Shouldn't Be Googling for Curious Boys. And she loved the book and she just uh, handed it to him. And then it just sat for weeks untouched on his nightstand. Jim. Yeah, but, that, but, it up. but she made a wonderful point about a book, not the throwing at me, which was what my father did. Mm-hmm. But the having a book is it basically says to the kid, when your door's closed and when you're comfortable and interested, you'll do it. So it should sort of supplement at least a willingness on the part of the parent to be there if the kid wants to talk to you. But if the kid is totally uncomfortable, and I assume a lot of parents are totally uncomfortable doing it too, then I think a good book, maybe not a diagram like her husband did, but a good book (laughs) actually is a great part of the solution, don't you? you're supposed to cultivate a culture of approachability in your household, Jim, and that will enable you to have just not the talk, but many individual talks on the subject. Wow. Yeah. But I like the one where, where, when babies, where do babies come from? Because that's early on. You know, kids wonder about that really early on. And she said they may just be wondering if the baby comes on Amazon or if the baby right. comes, you know, like I said before, in the supermarket or does somebody show up and bring the baby over? I mean, A they're stork. Not, do kids yeah, they're still not, say exactly. that? Exactly. Right. They're not talking about the actual uh, logistics of, of, of sex. They're talking about... You know, is it does it come in a little pink box or I, whatever? I got, yeah, I got it. Or a blue box, depending blue box. upon those stereotypes. That's right, but we're not supposed to do that anymore. I know, exactly no more my pink, point. No more blue. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. So how did you get the uh, the talk and how did you give the talk or how do you plan to give the talk and how did it go? We're looking for advice for your fellow parents, Jason and Arlington. Welcome. Hi. 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 Um, I loved it. I called in a couple of times. I love the show. Thanks. Marjorie, you're absolutely right. You've got to keep the conversation open. 
Um, right. I, uh, my mother was a teenage mom uh, who came from a Catholic family. They never talked about sex, which is likely <laughs> why she ended up a teenage mom. <laughs> exactly. It's uh, a good line. Uh, the way that she got through it was instead of denying it or, or making it a hang up, she went for the embarrassment. She made constant jokes about sex from the oh, time no. I was a child to the time I was a teenager, which is cringeworthy and awful in almost every sense, except it opens the dialogue. And when you, the joke, uh, it was enough to take down any, any, you know, hangups that I would have had. And right through my adulthood, I never had any problem, whether uh, uh, talking to her about sex at any point. I think that was a great way to open. So humor cracked the door open, so to speak. That's absolutely. Absolutely. You remember any of the jokes? Yeah, his mother said uh, three priests walk into a bar. Into no, that's that's a different joke. I'm sorry. Oh, you oh, ones you can't tell us on the radio. Okay, so they were yeah, kind of I, you know. Well, yeah, that on top of having paper thin walls in every apartment we lived in really helped. Um, <laughs> okay. Okay, Jason, thank you. That was a great call. You know, I buy that. I, I really, I am a huge believer that when you're entering in a discomfort zone, that uh, that humor can break it down a little bit. Don't you think that? Yes, I absolutely think that. But I also think that kids are so savvy online now that, um, as we talked about with Kara Baskin, they're getting a lot of stuff, unfortunately, like pornography online and leads to a lot of confusion, I think. Remember we talked about that a couple of years ago um, with a person that wrote an entire um, book about that, saying that kids look at pornography, then they think that they're supposed to. If they're Exactly. The they got to live up to that they gotta standard. they got to live up to what they're seeing, and, and most of us are not going to you know, grow up to look like porn stars. Nick from New Jersey. Hi, Nick. Hi, Nick. What's up? Hey there. Uh, former Bostonian calling back in after a few years now. Hey, oh, welcome thank you. Back. So, oh, thanks. Um, so yeah, I never really got much of a talk from my parents, ex- with the exception of my father very grumpily saying, you know, if you don't use protection, you're an idiot. And that was the extent of it. That's warm. Um, Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, he was very emphatic and I think he meant well, but, uh, you know, doesn't really cover everything. So my son's mother and I really make an active effort of sort of as your last guest was saying, making incremental um, conversations, the norm, you know, when a question comes up, answer it honestly, you know, when our son asked, where did he come from? We straight up told him from your mother's privates and, you know, <laughs> sort of made that norm of like, you're going to be dealing with these different bodies around you. You might as well sort of know the terminology. And especially for me as, um, a non-binary identifying person over time, these issues really you know, matter to me in the sense of, you know, keeping this open. And the only time I really step in with, you know, when he doesn't have a question is if we're around family or someone who sort of, you know, makes really inappropriate jokes or sort of reinforces kind of damaging norms. That's usually when I'll pull him inside and say, hey, you remember what uncle so-and-so said? Yeah, Yeah. he's being an idiot. Here's the truth. And Here's how you don't act because of that. Hey, Nick, uh, before you go, when you said when your kid asked where do babies come from, where I come from, whatever, and you said your mother's private parts, how old was the kid then? Uh, I'd say like six. And how did he react? Something like that. How did he react? 
pretty matter-of-factly. We're like, you know how animals and every other thing that gives live birth, you know, it comes well, that's from a pretty good one. a magical place. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we try to be as pain, painlessly real with him, and it seems to be working out just fine. That's great. Nick, thanks for the call. Good to talk to you from Jersey. This is from Deb. She said she saw it on Instagram mom telling her two sons that she had a baby in her belly, and one son kept asking if she'd eaten it. <laughs> That's how it ended up. That's a a pretty good one. That was pretty good. That's pretty good. 877. You know, by the way, you haven't talked about your own experience. I described my father throwing the book. I don't know. When I say at me, it did strike me, I believe, in some body part. But it was basically thrown in my direction. Uh, What what was your deal? My deal was I got to high school and we had Miss Crispo, the living fossil. A living fossil. Oh, I forgot about that. You know, basically said, don't take a... Don't go swim the pool at the Y, or don't take a bath after your brother or your father because oh, the sperm is swimming around the right in the pool. That was my sex education. Needless to say, it was very, it was very, (laughs) very confusing. Did Miss Crispo? By the way, did Miss Crispo Living Fossil was that her actual name or wasn't her name? Well, it wasn't the Living Fossil. No, (laughs) that was that was the nickname. But her name was Crispo. (laughs) Miss Crispo. It was. That is correct. I'm sorry. This is from Anne. She says, when our son was little, he loved to do puzzles. He asked how babies were made, so I told him the penis fits into the vagina, vagina quite like, just like a puzzle. And a couple of weeks later, he said, Mom, can I watch you and Dad do the puzzle? (laughs) I don't know if that's a true story, but I hope it is. That's a pretty good one, actually. Brian Melrose, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, how are you? We're good. Thank you. So I am the now adult child of two teenage parents who probably could have benefited from the talk themselves. Uh, my Both sides of the family are um, pretty prude, and it, sex is just not something that is talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so growing up, there was no talk for me from my teen parents. Um, it was really just the messaging of don't end up like we did, which <laughs> Miss Crispo must have been your teacher, too. Yeah, I'm with you, Bree. <laughs> it's no, bad. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the other thing I'll say, too, is there's a lot, a lot of great research out there now, and I think this kind of goes along with it, showing the importance of using the anatomically correct terms for body parts for children to prevent sexual assault and sexual abuse in minors. And so I think that these two topics certainly go hand in hand. And, you know, the more we learn the more we can educate our children. Excellent call from beginning to end, Bree. That was great. Thanks so much for uh, making it. We appreciate it. 877-301-8970 is our phone number. Amelia thinks we should just all take the kids to the farm. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> and let them see what's happening, as I always say. I guess say. so, yeah. The, you know, uh, your thing, I remember uh, just like it, the, the the beauty of school sex education. Oh, I am great. so with you. It was the great. notion that any parent yeah. does not want that is their their They came home escape. They were disgusted and appalled. They said, I can't imagine that when I was asleep down the hall, you and dad were asleep down the hall doing something else. They were disgusted by the whole thing. So it was wonderful. So speaking of that, didn't you tell me one of the uh, they all went to Brookline Public Schools. That's right. Didn't your one of your kids come 
Didn't you tell me they learned about a particular sex act that they you did. couldn't believe? I could not believe that. they that. were talking about? How, it seemed that, I seemed that they went a little above and beyond the how to baby. How old were they then at that point? I don't know. I think in the sixth grade or something And what, like what, what was that particular thing? Well, it was, it was oral sex. That's oral what sex. it was. Yes, it was oral sex. No, I think you have to start them early that. on that. I think that's, that's really... <laughs> Just don't tell Ted but, Cruz. But, you know, again, but, once again, I was glad that they somebody else told them. Rather me. Yeah, I mean, I would just wussed out completely. There's, let's face it. Lisa in the car. Thank Hello, you for Lisa. calling. What's up? Hi there. You guys are cracking me up. Well. <laughs> but, so, my daughter, like, we always use, like, the penis, vagina, vulva, all that stuff. Like, one time she walked into the room after my father changed her and said, Grampy saw my vulva. So, not exactly. <laughs> And as she got older, she, you know, when she needed the talk, that's when they get more withdrawn. So yeah. yeah. This book by Mark Brown, the creator of Arthur the Aardvark. Really? Called, What's the big deal? Talking to your kid about sex. Yes. And I wanted her to read it. And it was like a running joke. I'd put her on a bed. I'd find it under her bed. So finally I said, you know what, Cass, we're going to go to lunch. But while we're driving there, I want you to read me this book. So... She's in the back seat because she's small and doesn't weigh enough to be in the front seat. And she's reading me the book, but I knew when she got to a body part because she just kind of skip it or mumble it. So I'm like, honey, what word are you talking about? And she's like, well, the V word. And I'm like, just say vagina. And she's like, I don't want to say it. So we're driving along. It's a nice spring day. The windows are down. And she's like, I don't want to say it. And I'm like, just say a vagina. God damn it, say a vagina. <laughs> Pretty good. By the way, the book is not called the Mark Brown book is called What's the Big Secret? Not uh, I just looked it up. Mark Brown and uh, somebody else. I don't remember. Lori, somebody or other. Uh, he's great. That was a great story, too. Boy, that was a great story. Lisa, thank you for the call. Charlie says growing up in an Irish Catholic family of seven. Within 10 years, I never got the talk. The word pregnant was considered almost a swear word. I also have 11 nieces and nephews. I thought a couple made children when they slept together and somehow something jumped from the dad (laughs) to the mom. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's pretty good. Okay, let's go to Dave in Brooklyn. (laughs) Hi, Dave. Hey, Dave. Hi. Hi. How are you doing? Good. Great. So – uh, my mom kind of bailed on the talk and left it to my older brother, who's about six years older than I am. Mm-hmm. And he came into my room when I was about 14 or 15. He said, hey, I got to talk to you about something. I said, okay. And he said, do you know what a condom is? And I said, yeah. And he said, do you know how to use it? And I said, yeah. He's like, all right, good talk. And then he left. <laughs> oh, my God. Another great. <laughs> well, that's all you needed to know, don't you think, Dave? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a miracle that I never got anyone pregnant because I never used protection when I was a kid, but that's another story. Oh, that is another story. Dave, uh, thank you for sharing that tale. We appreciate it. Remember there was all the, I mean, it was because of the tragic situation with AIDS, but remember all the talk about safe sex, safe sex, safe mm-hmm. sex that went on? I mean, that was prob- that probably prevented a lot of pregnancies um, starting in the 80s and 90s, right? Yeah, you know, what is this? In non, you know, right-wing lunatic states... I'm. Well, I should have looked this up before this segment. What is the, what is the state of sex ed in public schools in, like Massachusetts, for example? Do you know when it starts or? 
I don't know how comprehensive I, I don't know. it is. Or? It, it, it was pretty comprehensive in Brookline, but I don't know what it's like across the state. But I, I would guess that a lot of states with more conservative legislatures, I mean, they're making all these rules now, the legislatures and how teachers should teach school, which yeah. is just horrible. But I would imagine in those places, they're not keen. They want to say the parents should teach the kids. That's what I understand. They always say, let the parents have the discussion with the kids. And I... I, I well, like I said, I was a wuss. I chickened out. I, I much prefer the teachers tell them everything, and I just uh, hear it when they get home. So quickly, uh, before we get back to the calls, uh, Miss Crispo, the living fossil. Mm-hmm. It's Miss Crispo, comma, the living fossil. As Marjorie <laughs> said, it's not her last name, Crispo, living fossil. Did she <laughs> believe that rogue sperm in the tub were going to do it, or she just... I don't know. I don't, don't know. know. But that's that's the rogue sperm were always fossil. were always uh, you know out there terrorizing you. That's why if you sat in your boyfriend's lap, you had to put the yellow pages between you and your boyfriend because the rogue sperm would, would somehow jump from the yellow pages. You know, I right through that. the yellow pages. Yeah, I don't know. It seemed uh, it seemed ridiculous, but I mean, you don't want to take a chance. I mean, you, you might as well use. And you know what happened? By the way, the proof that Miss Crispo living fossil knew what mm-hmm. she was talking about mm-hmm. when they got rid of yellow pages, the pregnancy rate went up. <laughs> 72%. Do you know that? In Full River, that is. I'm talking about Full River. Well, there are a lot of pregnant people in my school, I know that. so I don't want to take any chances. Well, actually, as we know, That's Marjorie's like claim to fame. I'm going to go into it. No, I'm going into it. Okay. Marjorie was the only cheerleader the in the only. high school. I'm Excuse me, I'm speaking. Marjorie was the only cheerleader in the high school cheerleading team who was not pregnant at graduation. Is that, that is true? That's an exaggeration. By how much? I wasn't the only By how one. much? There were a couple more. Okay, fine. Me. Barrett and Cambridge, you're next on Boston Public Radio. You've got a minute. Go. Hi. Oh, hey. Hi. Um, I'm the mom of two boys, age yeah. six and 10. Yeah. And I agree with everything about trying to be approachable and having mm-hmm. these incremental conversations when things come up. But the biggest thing, my 10-year-old is just not interested. So I kind of remember all the conversations I had growing up, and I bought him the books, and I sat with him, and I read a book on the end of his bed until he sort of, like, slammed his hand down and said, okay, enough, okay, I'm good. And I showed him where the books were on his bookshelf. I don't think he's ever touched them. But for him and his little brother, who is, I think, going to be much more interested in learning about the birds and bees than he is, I think it's so helpful to talk early about it because, you know, my 10-year-old's going to sleepaway camp this summer. He's going to be, you know, on sports teams that are traveling and away. And we've heard all the stories. And I really think if they have the language, I mean, I've told him, both of them, this from the very beginning, like, besides me and your dad and your doctors, like, there's not really a lot of reasons anybody Mm. should ask you anything about your body or spend any time looking at you naked. And I just don't want to leave it to chance and just assume that everybody, you know, I can't vet everybody. He's going to be away from me more and more and more. So this is what I'm doing. I'm just making sure he has all the language. Um, yep. Even if sex isn't on the horizon for him for a while longer, being away from us and being with other adults is. so. I think you have the perfect formula. I think that's great. Barrett, thank you much for the call. Our colleagues, this can't be possible. We have Paul Revel, former Secretary of Education, later this week. Since Massachusetts schools are not required to provide sex education to students, school districts are left to decide what type of sex ed, if any at all, they provide. That can't be possible. Is it? Is it? Guess so. They just they just looked it up, so I assume oh, they're right. Listen, this is from Randy. My daughter time. around six announced the babies came from the bottom shelf in the supermarket, specifically Star Market in the Fenway. Then oh. I gave her the talk. Her only question, is it fun? <laughs> what did he say? We gotta go, Marjorie. Uh, yeah, when you're married, so okay. they had to get to throw that one in the in the Time's container. Up. Okay, we're done. We're absolutely done with the sex and everything else. 
tomorrow we're going to be joined by CNN's John King and also by an expert on how to combat misinformation, how to tell what's wrong and what's right. We want to thank our crew, Jenny Bologna, Zoe Matthews, Aidan Conley, Mackenzie Farkas, Rebecca Tauber, our engineer, John the Cloth Parker, and additional support provided by Prefeet TK. Jim, what's on TV tonight? Well, two people who are leading the crusade to stop Tufts from closing its uh, inpatient care for kids. And you're going to be really interested in this. Charles Bogues, about 20-plus years ago, pled guilty to murdering Louis D. Brown, who was then the 15-year-old son of Tina Cherry. Well, uh, he is now saying 20-some years later, Charles is, he did not kill Louis Brown. He's on my show tonight. We'll be talking about that uh, tonight at 7 o'clock. That sounds like um, an excellent show, Jim. I'm going to be tuning in. Thank you very much uh, uh, again for tuning in today to our show. That's that's our radio show. I'm Marjorie Egan. That's our radio show. That's a good point. I'm Jim Browdy. Thanks again for uh, listening, and I hope you have time to tune in tomorrow. Meanwhile, have a great day.